there you go. Now, Daniel knows that I have big ears, so we got extra large. We seem to be working for Big years. listeners is what one of his teachers called it. <laughs> yeah. His ears are bigger than mine, and, and, his, and his, his dad's ears were the size of Zach's head. <laughs> Dumbo. So that's what, okay. Did I call your ask, dad Dumbo no. or me? I'm just kidding. I was going to ask where I'll Paul got, got his large head from. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great. You ready to go? Let's do it, man. All right. Welcome to episode nine. nine. Is it nine? Wow. We've done nine so far. We're up to uh, 17 listeners, maybe. Unrelated <laughs> to us, non family members, it's probably like seven, mm-hmm. maybe seven people. Maybe. Everybody that listens to this listens to the podcast either knows Daniel, me, or the guest. I think that's accurate so far. Yeah, and I would like to say thank you for listening. Yeah, for all <laughs> 17 those, of them. Yeah, they don't have to, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So in this podcast episode, we have my dad, Larry Gilman. Uh, my dad was born in the, uh, 45, yeah. which makes you 42. <laughs> uh, and he was born in Ashland, and besides uh, some military time and college time, you've basically lived here your entire life here in Ashland, Virginia. And I will say I was born literally in Ashland. Most everybody else in my generation was born in the hospital in Richmond. I was born at home in Ashland. So give, a, give, us, give us the address because this is uh, especially near and dear to my heart and Zach's heart. This is for posterity. So 212 Thompson Street. Right. Right in the middle of town. Right. Mm-hmm. Almost perfectly in the middle of town. Close. Like, like two, three blocks off the railroad tracks. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know many people that know the address of their own birth. Well, your, your mom lived there. Up until what, eight, ten years ago? Yeah, till she died. Yeah. Well, she lived at a home for a couple of years. Right, but before that, she lived. Well, that she did. Yeah, yeah, lived in the same house you were born in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got your father, and we've got you, and we've got a third. We have a third Gilman here. We do. Zach Gilman. That's him talking <laughs> right there. So talk some more, Zach. Hello. Hello. How's it going? <laughs> so Zach is our occasional uh, Google machine guy. Right, last time he was Google Machine, we were talking about the uh, the million dollar minute when Brian Coleman was on. Uh-huh. Oh, we listened to that. Yeah. Did, uh, that was- right, uh, and so Zach's contribution because he didn't want to talk was to just hold up his phone to show Daniel some video of the million dollar minute. <laughs> but this time he's actually going to talk, which uh, I'm really looking forward to. And, and Zach is also Paul's son. For yes. those that are listening, yes, he is. So we, this is the Three Generations podcast. Mm-hmm. In fact, very nice, Daniel. Uh, in fact, my dad is the uh, only boy in your generation immediate family right you have an older sister and a younger sister i'm the only male my generation i have a younger sister no brothers and zach is fortunate enough to have two younger sisters so we we zach is the only one that will carry on the gilman name the almost world famous uh gilman last name yeah (laughs) so dad uh why have you basically always stayed in uh ashland uh when you leave you come back kind of quick well (laughs) yeah i don't know I, i i just just have a connection here, I guess. I just came back here. Brother's from my wife from here. You know, she she was born right outside of Ashland. So, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I guess that's that's an interesting story. I guess my wife and I met in the first grade, and have wow. known each other since then. I didn't know her really before that, and uh, and we started dating. Well, hold the, on, you're in you're the tenth grade. Dating in the tenth grade, and who asked who out? Well, I was going to say that. Oh, okay, All right. nice. <laughs> All right. I like it. Actually. That was it was unheard of back in those days for a girl to ask a boy out, except on what they call a Sadie Hawkins day, and that was when the girls could ask the boys out. And Brenda asked me out. Only it was a hayride kind of thing. I forget what it was, some sort of thing. Anyway, she asked me out, and we dated from then on. Broke up a couple of times, I guess, but 
I guess I never I, really... I like to think of y'all as never having broke up. <laughs> well, okay, we'll say that. Then. Yeah, we'll go with that. And anyway, we dated all through the rest of high school, through all the college, got married right out of college. Yeah, and you guys went to two different colleges, and so you, colleges. you saw each other a handful of times yeah. during the year, but you were basically apart. And then, for those I, four I, years. so we knew a lot of people here. We, we we graduated from college. We went off to the army. Year and a half. In, well, I went to various training and stuff. Engineer officer basic course first of all. Which is they a don't f- call it that anymore. I don't think that was at Fort Belvoir, and uh, Brenda State International, of course. And uh, then I went to Ranger School. And uh, all right, let, let's slow yeah. down. Let's slow down there. So, uh, you told me one story from Ranger School. I, I guess you've told me a handful of stories, but one I really remember. Uh, everybody who goes to Ranger School has a story of being extremely tired, and then just essentially either just falling asleep. And then something kind of interesting happening after they fall asleep, or they start to hallucinate. The story you told me was not didn't have anything to do with hallucinations, but you did fall asleep. Uh, oh yeah, a like, couple of times. Yeah, well, tell tell, tell us <laughs> one where it was really dark and you guys were in a file. Well, y'all know about Ranger School because I, I listened to also Mike's, and uh, so you know you're very tired, and very hungry, uh, and. One night, we were on patrol, and, and you switch leadership roles. You sw- sw- switch positions within the squad, within the platoon and all, mm-hmm. while you're going on these missions. So at the time, I was just a grunt, and I was at the end of the line. It's pitch dark, raining. We're in the mountains, the lot of Georgia. And the, the patrol leader is lost, which you expect. <laughs> I would have been. <laughs> so he's under a poncho in a tactical area, no light. So he's got a poncho all over him. And I guess two of them were under there, and they had a light, a little light on trying to read a map, trying to figure out where they are. I mean, it's almost impossible. It's very difficult to do at night. And anyway, so squad stops while he's doing all that. I'm at the very end, and what we were doing was holding on to the people in front of us because it's so dark, you can't see the person in front of you. You have to hold on to it. Hands in the web belt, essentially. in the web belt and the guy in front of you. Well, we were all just standing up waiting for him. I fell asleep. Standing up. Yeah, standing up. I fell sound asleep. And I know I was sound asleep because it was pitch dark. It was the last thing I remember with hand in the belt. Next thing I know, I wake up, it's broad daylight. <laughs> and the squad is gone. It, it had to be at least a couple hours away, I think. About <laughs> oh, it. At, at least. least it had to be. Squad's gone. But you're still standing <laughs> up. You're just I'm still standing up, and I wake up like a horse or something like that. <laughs> and, and anyway, and we're in a tactical area. You weren't supposed to make any noise. You and but I, I you and I, I are the only two laughing. Zach and Daniel are like, what does he tell? tell so you're out in the middle of the woods? I'm looking the up. Yeah, we're in the, in the woods, in, in the mountains. It's just a remote, mountainous area in North Georgia. And uh, we're in tactical, so we can't make it in there. So there's sort of a trail in front of me, so I just kind of take off as fast as I can, seeing if I can't find them you know, real quick, connect up with my squad. Because, you know, you're not supposed to be separated. You're going to be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, couldn't, I couldn't find them. I couldn't catch them. So finally... I just started yelling. I just started yelling. I said, I don't care. It's tactical. I'm, I'm lost in the woods. I got to get out of here. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just, tired and hungry. I might have days to live. <laughs> I started yelling, and I just kept moving forward and, and hollering. And I, and I finally hear a holler way off in the distance, and, and we linked up. And believe it, and none of the, uh, what's it called, range evaluators, I guess, uh, you know, the active army guys who mm-hmm. were supervising us and rating us they nobody none of them heard us and so we got i got away with the yelling unbelievable Mm -hmm. you got because they're not around you one or two hours a day maybe maybe three well i mean they were they would leave us alone sometimes but most of the time they were around yeah have you since fallen asleep standing up uh 
only again at writer school. It sounds impossible, <laughs> right? I mean, I've, I'm I've, just telling you what happened. No, I believe you. I, I've been, I've been really tired, but I've never been that tired. And another time, I fell asleep at writer school. I was. I was a machine gunner in the squad. Again, just a grunt job, but I'm carrying this M60 machine gun, which is really heavy, by the way. If you have to carry one, try to avoid it. Uh, <clears throat> Except at range school, because you get peered out if you <laughs> avoid the, the 60. Yeah, right? and you, and you, we just walked. Well, at that point, it was again night, but it had some light. Must have been some starlight, moonlight, or something. And uh, walking down the road, and I fell asleep, carrying a machine gun, walking this time. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And, oh. and I, I know I was asleep because it was a whole different environment when I woke up sometime later. So, so wait a minute, you, you fell asleep as you were walking, but you came to a stop, I, I assume. No, I, you, you I were... don't think so. I just remember, I remember carrying a machine gun, then I don't remember anything, then I'm awake and I'm still carrying a machine gun, and walking is my memory, and different place, we're in a different place. Wow. So it could have been five minutes, but I was asleep. <laughs> you, and you were holding on to the machine gun the whole <laughs> Didn't time. Didn't drop the machine gun. Uh, Maybe that's why I've never been in. I'm sorry, Zach? How many hours of sleep did you get a night normally? Oh, well, uh, radio school was, Mike got this a little wrong, I think. Oh, it is eight Mike, weeks. Mike's going to be listening to this. <laughs> it is eight weeks, uh, but the the no sleep and the very little food is, is in different chunks. The first time, at least in my radio school, was a three-week deal i mean a three-day deal and then it was a i don't know then maybe a i can't remember now but in each phase it was one of, it was benning phase the delonica georgia mountainous phase and then a swamp phase in florida and the first one was three days and then i think in the mountains and then in, and, and then two seven or eight day missions and those are the ones that really get you because that's where you don't get hardly any sleep jack for for say seven nights eight days you get maybe if you're lucky you might get a nap for an hour or two for each night for seven or eight straight wow. days. And you get one, I guess it was C rations back then instead of an MRA, you get one C ration a day. If, Basically a can of food. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe a couple of cans. Yeah. Well, so uh, Mike went to an eight week course, but he went 12, 13 years after you did. They, they could have changed the curriculum around. Oh, sure. A it could, bit. could have been changed. But the object is the same as Mike stated it is to wear you down, break you down put you in a leadership position or just a grunt position and see what you're going to do, but particularly the leadership positions. And in order to wear the tab, the Ranger tab, you have to pass. You have to pass three of your four leadership missions, not, not mess up too badly. So a lot of pressure, you're hungry, and you're very tired. Yeah. Wh- which one would you rather have, more sleep or more food at Ranger School? <laughs> I think I would have taken sleep. Yeah, I think I would too. <laughs> I think everyone would. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty bad. And, and Brenda, about Ranger School, while we're talking about it, Brenda remembers Ranger School. When I got back, because I, I never got injured or anything, but when I got back from Ranger School, I had probably probably half inch worth of, of callus on the bottom of my feet from all the walking that we did. I, 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 we, on the way home, we got out in a hot asphalt parking lot in Georgia in the summer, or like maybe maybe June, May or June, somewhere along in there. It was hot, really hot. I can just walk right across that hot asphalt. I couldn't feel it. <laughs> that seems ridiculous. It's, so, it's like it's not human, <laughs> right? That part of your... It was... Seems not. We did a lot of walking. So yeah. you, you went April and May time frame. I, yes, I think it was April, May. And, and, uh, did, I was not a winter ranger. Oh, I hated that. That's terrible. Yeah, the, I would take the guys that I knew when, when I got in, uh, they would... Sew their uh, ranger tab on with white uh, thread. 
Oh, no, I never heard that. Yeah, I well, I, I, it wasn't prevalent, I don't think. Vaughn Mills was a winter ranger, and he had. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I've talked to him about that because I bet that was brutal, especially at Delonica. Yeah. Well, I mean, guys have died at ranger school from hypothermia and that kind of stuff. It's. It's not for the faint of heart, for sure. So uh, I, you and I both know that military uh, posts and bases are very serious about speed limits. Uh, and if you go one mile per hour over, you are speeding, and you will get pulled over and given a ticket. There, I don't think there's any questions about, about that. It happens every time. Did, uh, did you have a speeding problem uh, the first day of ranger school? <laughs> well, I wasn't that ready. I was on my way to ranger school, and I got stopped. on Like the day you're supposed on, to on bed, I'm, I'm coming on the post. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, 17 and a 15 is my memory. Oh. <laughs> but I, so I, he pulled me over for 17 and a 15. And I said, but when he found out that I was a brand new second lieutenant and I was on my way to ranger school, he did not give me a ticket. Oh, wow. He did not give me a ticket. A lot of I didn't tell him that. I mean, he asked me where I was going, so I told him I'm going to ranger school. He could see I was a dumb second lieutenant, so he gave me a break. <laughs> when, when did you become a smart officer? Since you were a dumb I never did. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Because you're the son of a uh, staff sergeant, right? Yeah, he was Gramp, staff, Gramps. Uh, staff sergeant in World War II, yeah. Yeah, and what kind of jobs did Gramps have? He was mostly transportation. Yeah, he did a little grunt work. I, I right? think so. I mean, they, you know, they did some. He got some sniper stuff, I think, and all while he was doing transportation stuff. But How long was he there? Oh, shoot, I don't remember. Uh, well, you weren't alive. Right, because you were born in 45. Born in 45. Uh, I don't know. we got to find out. He was, he was a couple it, of years. Zach, uh, your great-grandfather, he? He, he was in Western Europe. Yeah, like France. Europe. I guess he was in France, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He was in France, and he, the way I remember it, and I, I could be completely wrong, he was supposed to be part of... Uh, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand people headed to Japan after yeah, the war was, ended in Europe in April. designated for that, yeah. yeah. War ended in April in uh, Europe. Uh, the Japanese didn't surrender until August, and so we thought there was going to be some more fighting. More yep. fighting than had already happened in the Pacific. Yep. For sure. Was he over there a couple of years? I can't, I don't want to say for sure, yeah, but we, I think that's ballpark. All yeah. right, I, I got to look that up. I gotta, and it's not on Google, Zach. So, <laughs> for sure. All right, so you're the middle kid of three kids. Uh, this is fun for, because uh, Zach and I were talking earlier today, it'd be fun for Zach's kids someday to hear a conversation that has dad, granddad, and great-granddad on it. Uh, you married a woman named Brenda, my mom, and your older sister's also Brenda. Before your which sister. Mel thinks it's just fantastic. So, so do I, which is yeah. why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> Her name before she was married, your sister, was Brenda Gilman. She gets married, she becomes Brenda Loving, but mom marries you. She goes from Brenda Gibson to Brenda Gilman. And so you've had a Brenda Gilman in your life, basically. <laughs> there was maybe a three or four year break yeah, in there. Uh, yeah. And, and Mel thinks it's also fantastic that your mother's name is Brenda Jane Gilman, and my other sister is named Jane. <laughs> there were only seven people back in Ashland <laughs> back in the forties. Forties, fifties, no intermarriage. Names back yeah, then. there's yeah, there's no intermarriage. <laughs> At least that's what my dad's tell us. <laughs> so. Uh, I, you may not feel comfortable telling the story, but uh, I remember I, you telling me the story about your older sister. And she's what four or five years older than you. Five, five years older than you, and you were uh, mad at her when y'all were doing some work outside, and you may have thrown a gardening utensil of some sort. Oh, I did. I do remember that. So, I don't remember a whole lot about my childhood, but I remember. You know, sisters are a pain, as Zach can tell you. 
and I had one older and one younger. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the younger one was about five years younger. So I, you know, kind of spread out there. But anyway, yeah, Brenda would, my older sister would harass me from time to time, as I probably would, probably would have done where the ages switched. Right. But she really made me mad one day. We were outside. I was doing something with a lawnmower or something, I think, or raking leaves or something. Anyway, she made me mad, and I picked up the rake, a broom rake, kind of. Like a garden rake, rake or like a leaf no, rake? No, like a, not like a heavy garden rake, right. but a leaf rake. And she knew I was going to throw it at her. <laughs> she took off running. <laughs> I mean, I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never physically hurt her before. And she was five years older. She, I can't remember if she ever physically hurt me or not. She may have. Uh, but anyway, I threw it at her. And it hit the side. It hit the corner of the house right as she went around it. Bam. I was real sorry I didn't hit her. Right, because I asked you, I said, are you sorry you threw the rake? And you said, no, sorry I didn't hit her. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's good times. Mm-hmm. So uh, you were went to Patrick Henry High School. You were the first, uh, part of the first class that went all four years? When I was first, or the first class to go all four years at Patrick right. Henry High School, yeah. And uh, were you known for anything in high school? I don't know what you mean by <laughs> Were you, were you a jock? Was, were you a geek? Brenda was, was voted the most best all-around girl. I was voted the best all-around boy. I, I, was, I never knew that. I, well. What you, happened to me? Now you do now. now I, have, I have you and mom's recessive <laughs> genes, apparently. <laughs> and, and she... And, and by, I, by the way, that's a, I, I'm 51. That's the first time I've ever heard that. I've, uh, I play football and basketball, and I, I started... On the basketball team, junior and senior year, I was captain senior year. Brenda was the, the captain. Brenda was the ca- head cheerleader. Yeah. And I was the captain of the basketball team. So I always thought that's kind of cool. But anyway, uh, no, I mean we both made good grades. Got into college. And... Right on. Were you a uh, bigger student or athlete? Oh, probably student. <laughs> I mean, I was okay. But I, you know, that was the end of my athletic career. Was when I graduated from high school. So. I, so you you, all that you played uh, what left or right guard on the line on offense and football, and then you were point guard on the basketball uh, team. Yeah, point guard or two guard with two guards sometimes. Okay, could you uh, dunk the ball? No. <laughs> <laughs> could you dunk a tennis ball? Oh, in my dream. Could you dunk it. a tennis ball? <laughs> you could dunk a tennis ball. I never tried to dunk a tennis ball. I don't think. Wow. You think you could dunk a tennis ball now? <laughs> I'd be lucky to pick up a tennis ball. <laughs> you know, when you're young, you drop something, you just pick it up. When right. you're my age or older, you drop something, you got to think about it. Do I really want that? <laughs> that's, that's funny. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> after high school, Mr. All Around for your class, which I, I didn't know, uh, that's that's actually kind of cool. Um, it's really cool, actually. Do they do that anymore? Best all-around boy and girl. They call them senior superlatives. I don't know if they still. Yeah, do they or probably not. did from yeah, the fifties. They, they had all kind like of best all around, all, all kind of different right categories. Anyway. One of them was best all around. All right. So uh, after high school, you went to Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, and did you not know about other colleges, or is that the <laughs> only one you heard of? <laughs> That's probably the only one I knew. Yeah. No, I don't know. I just wanted to go to Virginia Tech. I, I wanted. To, I think I was headed. Uh, to the military, and that was a, a cadet corps up there. What motivated? In fact, if you went to uh, if you went to tech back then, you had to be in the corps. You had to be in, huh. in the corps of cadets for two first two. You years. had to start in the corps. Yeah. yeah, and then you you would decide to continue in the corps or basically become a civilian. Yeah. And so and I got an ROTC scholarship. Ah, okay. And 
since my parents really couldn't afford to send me to college, right? <laughs> I kept it for four years. And, well, I got an academic scholarship the first year, lost that. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow, I'm learning all kinds then of stuff. Then got today. the ROTC you, scholarship. Your, your, your wife, my <laughs> mom, would say years. you were a perfect student, you were perfect, everything, never did anything wrong, which is her way of saying you need to be like your father. Yeah. And now you're telling me you lost your academic scholarship? Maybe this is a bad idea for me to have this interview <laughs> with my grandson here. <laughs> <laughs> Zach understands that uh, you and I are both human, so it's all yeah. good. Oh, okay. Yeah. You okay with that, Zach? Oh, yeah, no, definitely. actually, my fr- my they did quarters then, you know, four quarters of the year, including the summer quarter instead of semesters. And my first quarter, I uh, failed mechanical drawing. Well, that's because you don't have the aptitude for that. That's why you right. failed that. Yeah. Right, I didn't have aptitude for that, but I also failed English. And then after that... Was English your second was... language? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Anyway, that was that's is, what happened. I lost my scholarship because of that. Is that because you weren't studying as much as you should have? No, uh, mechanical drawing aside, it was, well, I, I don't think it, it it rat year, which is your first uh, year. Yeah, I yeah. can't really. You really shouldn't blame it on rat year, but most rats didn't make very good grades. I'll say that. Yeah, because their time was being occupied because by because you things. were being harassed a lot when you. Well, the, although they did, they did force study time on us too. Sounds like they didn't force enough on didn't you. Force enough on yeah. me. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So you you spend four years in tech, and you in, you enjoyed tech, right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It was a good experience. And then you you graduated sixty seven. The Vietnam War had started about halfway through college for you, and you said, "Wow, seems like a great idea. Let, let me go uh, to a foreign place and fight a war." <laughs> right. It's essentially what you. Well, I, you know, I had I had orders uh, before before I guess before I went on active duty. Uh, to go to Germany, and uh, and so that's where, that's where we went. And then so you did Belvoir. Well, first the first two years consisted of that training, EOBC and Ranger School, and you know I guess travel and stuff was about six months. And then it was a year and a half in Germany. And then in order to pay for that year and a half in Germany, which was really wonderful, he was born over there. We did a lot of traveling. We didn't have any money, but every penny we could get our hands on, we hopped in our old beat up Chevrolet and drove all over Europe. Uh, which was fantastic. Uh, yeah, I've, then, I've been to the Eiffel Tower. I've been to amazing <laughs> places in Italy. I don't places. remember any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then I had to, I had to pay for that by going to Vietnam for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, I, how many places did we live in Germany? Because Lisa and I, my wife, went to Germany a couple summers ago. And when I came home, Mom was telling me, "Oh yeah, you lived in this place and that place." Yeah. Let's see. We three lived- three different physical places. There were five moves, but. A couple, well, one was to move over there, and then another one was to move from living in a German apartment to moving on to base. But we lived in Schweinfurt, uh, the subject of the largest uh, bombing raid of the war because all the ball bearing factories were there. And then a uh, beautiful little village right where the confluence of two rivers came in, Big High Bluff was up here, uh, where we lived. Was uh, that Wartburg? Wartime, that was the name of that little village. And then uh, Schaffenberg, which was over near... Uh, Chief, which is a big, big town of uh, Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Yeah, yeah. Frankfurt. We flew back from Frankfurt. So yeah. why, why was I born in Würzburg? Because I was the nearest military hospital to where we were. Where did we live at the time? I think. We or must, where did you live at the time? We must have lived in Schweinfurt. Okay. All right. Uh, Würzburg was big, a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. Well, it's, I'm sure it's grown in the yeah. 50 years. But, right. Uh, yeah, but it was a nice, nice-sized place when we were there. Okay. If I remember correctly. It's pretty. It's gorgeous. Yeah. 
So when, when you lived over there, you and mom were there, you were living in basically in town kind of thing? It wasn't... We wasn't, lived in town for a big part of that, and uh, and then we moved on to base because it was just more convenient and, you know, had more stuff. Like in a, in a German apartment, if we wanted to... Take, we couldn't take a shower. We didn't have a shower, but if we wanted to take a bath, we had to light a little gas heater, which was right over top of the bathtub. You lit that up, and uh, and it was it was just at a distance from everything. Yeah. And so we moved on to the when it became available, we we did take it. We went on to. Is this where the bath thing started for mom? I don't know. I think she's just always like that. <laughs> we'll come back to that. In, in, in yes, a bit. that. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> That's all part of but, the story. But another another interesting story, a little minor story about me going in the military. I guess I watched too many John Wayne movies or something. I don't know. But I wanted to be an infantryman. I wanted to be Airborne Ranger CIB. CIB being... My, I don't remember Mike. That's combat infantryman's badge, meaning you've actually been in a firefight. I'm pretty sure Mike has a CIB. And, um, and that's what I wanted to do. And so, in this, I guess towards the end of our senior year, they, you put your choices down for your branch. So I put infantry, even though it was 1967 in Vietnam. Was like like maybe the dumbest thing you've ever done <laughs> in your life. Probably. Your mother <laughs> saved my life. But anyway, I put infantry, combat engineer, and something else. I don't know, maybe signal corps or something. It didn't make any difference. And uh, and so, Brenda asked me what I'd put down. Because she loved you. I guess I'd made the mistake of telling her that I had to make those choices. <laughs> and she so she asked me what I put down. I I don't tell lies, certainly not to Brenda. So I told her, and she went nuts. I've never seen her go so nuts. <laughs> She's not an emotional woman, really. She, I don't no, I've never, I've never seen her lose. She, she doesn't cry. You know, she, she's just not emotional. She went nuts. She said, what, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and so she practically insisted that I go back and change that. So I said, yes, dear. And I went back, and I, so I told her I'd change it, so I changed it. What I did was I flip-flopped the first two. Infantry was still high, though. Yeah, infantry was second, engineer was first. I figured, 1967, they need infantry lieutenants really badly. Anybody who's dumb enough to put it in the first three is going to get it. They, mm-hmm. Well, they... they they were dying pretty regularly over there. They were the number one target over there. And I didn't get it. I got. I actually got my first choice. Probably the first time the Army ever did that during wartime. And, and, until 91 yeah. when I got my first choice. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's how I ended up as combat engineer. So that, and then I wanted... I'm sorry. What's the difference between uh, infantry and combat engineer? Infantry is what you would call the tip of the spear, okay? The, the military. You got infantry... The infantry are the people who go out and seek out the enemy and try to kill him. Everybody else supports that. Uh, there's well, armor is kind of like that, but they they're there too. Armor, they're, they're rolling infantry in a sense. Armor and, and artillery, infantry, armor, and artillery are considered the combat arms because they're really towards the front of the action and they're the ones who are actually putting fire upon the enemy. You know, trying mm-hmm. to kill them. Everybody else supports that. Combat engineers support that. Okay. And combat engineers uh, are, can, depending on the unit type, they can travel with the infantry, function as infantry, but they're, to your point, yeah. they're to support. And so it's a lot of uh, helping them maneuver, helping prevent the enemy from maneuvering. Uh, so real yeah. offense, defense support sort of role. Well, it used to be called mobility, countermobility, and survivability were the tasks of a combat engineer. In general en- engineer, Mobility yeah. was to keep our forces moving. That would be just get obstacles out of the way whether they be rivers or whether they be a crater in the road or minefield. whether it be a minefield. Yeah. 
Uh, and then that was mobility for our forces. And then the other countermobility was to block the infantry by putting in minefields, blowing up a road, a big crater in the road, blowing up a bridge, you know, creating all kinds of obstacles. And the main purpose of the obstacles, again, to keep them from moving, but to do what's called channel, bring them into channel, bring the enemy down to a more narrow killing zone. That's what, on a large scale, 30,000 foot view, that's what the, we'd be trying to do. Mm. Uh, that, and then the survivability is just building things to protect our own forces. So that's what combat engineers do. Okay. I would just tell people we blew stuff up all the time. <laughs> well, there's sir, a lot of, a lot of that, involves sure. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zach, what do you got, man? I'm just absorbing right now. It's a lot to take in. It is. It? This yeah. is all new information to me. <laughs> so I want to hear the story of Paul's birth. Wow. <laughs> do you remember that? Well, <laughs> well, back then, you know, and I, much to my regret, they didn't, they didn't really want guys in the, in the room. You know, so it was all, I, I was not there. Uh, I was, and then actually, <laughs> I forget what happened. Brenda, Brenda remembers this probably in a much more negative way than I do, but I had gone to get something to eat, I think, when the event actually happened. <laughs> so they come out looking for me, and I'm not there. <laughs> Brenda will make that sound a lot worse than it is. <laughs> She's told me that story, and she does make it sound worse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So you don't you don't remember it at all. But otherwise, the actual moment, I got to be there for all three of my kids. I know you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. No, we just guys didn't do that. They didn't bring. They didn't invite us into the birthing room. This mm-hmm. this is like the U.S. Army's version of Mad Men. You were just kind of doing. You were drinking scotch and smoking a cigar while mom's giving birth, kind of thing. No. <laughs> Eat a anyway, cheeseburger, maybe. But yeah, I don't remember anything really eventful. I, we knew. I guess our water broke and. Like I drove you over there, it wasn't a big emergency. So, so uh, that's all, except I, I wasn't there when they came out to tell me that you were around. <laughs> <laughs> Just giving the impression that you weren't that interested. <laughs> oh, it must be that's like right. a sick kid or something. <laughs> you met him eventually, though. Yeah, yeah that's right, I did. <laughs> well, how much time went by? Like a couple hours? I mean, I'm from, what do you mean from when like, to when? well, they, I was born. They try to find you. They couldn't find you. How much more time? Oh, last? I don't know. I don't remember that. Mom, mom would say like a half day. <laughs> she would day. say I was gone for a couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. Paul was fatherless. It wasn't long. I'm sure. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what was your primary mission? Your unit's mission? Cause you were, you were unlucky to be at war cause nobody wants to go to war, but you were in a combat zone and you were a company commander, as I recall. Well, I had different, different jobs in, in, in Vietnam. I, when I first got there, I was a, operations officer for the 299th Engineer Battalion. Uh, you know, just one of the guys in the S3 shop. Right. And I didn't stay there very long. And I think I was in, I was in NK, I think. And my whole, my, all my time, Vietnam was in four zones. They call them by cores, for Roman numerals. So they call the first one I-Corps, then two-Corps, three-Corps, four-Corps. And I was in two-Corps the whole time. NK was out in there. And it, you had the mountainous area, and then it came down to the, South China Sea, and there were the flat area was rice paddies, basically. And so I was in the mountainous area there with them, the Anke Pass. That was a pretty famous pass. I don't know if anybody knows about it now, but a uh, very notorious place for ambushes and stuff, going through, it was a, going up a mountain, and, you know, to where the base was. And um, did stay there long. Then I went to uh, the engineer group. And for the life of me, the the 937th, there it is, I couldn't uh, remember. You have a Nine, patch. You have a patch with it. 937th Engineer yeah. Group. A, a, and the engineers, the structure's a little bit different. The group is equivalent of a brigade 
that it would be a more common term. But both those a brigade headquarters and a group headquarters are the same in that they managed battalions underneath them, command and control of X number of battalions. An engineer group could do up to five, anywhere from two to five battalions. And I was, I was the S2. Oh, I didn't know you were the two. You don't know what that was, do you? I don't know. What, <laughs> well, Zach need, doesn't either. Yeah. We're going to need some breakdowns. <laughs> yeah, S1 is administration. Well, you got a, you got a commander, you got an XO, you got an S1 who does all the paperwork, pay and all that, finance, all that stuff, mm -hmm. personnel records, all that stuff. And then you got an S2 who's intelligence. He lets you, he tries to. Well, it's not intelligence, it's military intelligence. Oh, yeah, which is, okay. Which is different. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You didn't have to be so intelligent. Because <laughs> they wouldn't have put me there. But you collect intelligence on the enemy, information about the enemy, so you can inform the commander. You know, so you read all these reports and everything, and you try to get everything in that you can get in, so we know both the enemy and then you, you know, you keep the command informed about that. So I did that for a little while, and uh, then I, then I went to the, I was a headquarters company commander for about a month of the 84th Engineer Battalion, and then I became the commander of A Company of the 84th, and I did that. I think I did that for about the last six months. So those other miscellaneous things took about six months, and then I was a company commander for six months. So you were uh, military intelligence in that role for a bit. Uh, when I came through, <clears throat> military intelligence guys were trained to be military intelligence guys. You didn't take an infantry guy or an engineer and, and put them in yeah, the, the S2 I had, slot. I had none of that training. Yeah. yeah. They just said, you're the S2. They said, we got a vacancy, and you're a captain, so you're going in there. Okay. Yeah. All right. So tell us about your company command time, because you and I both shared a little bit about each other's company command experiences. You and I both enjoyed being in those jobs more than we yeah. enjoyed being in the staff jobs. Sure. Command job is 100 times better than a staff job. Infinitely. To me. Better. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the headquarters company command is just, that's that's rough, but it's, it's not. A tough, it's a tough job. It's yeah. a tough job, but it's not exciting. Uh, it's uh Basically, the big problem with the headquarters company command, y'all don't need to know all this stuff, but is you have command of all the soldiers for all the soldier things, but most of the staff officers, depending on what level you're at, or many of the staff officers, will outrank you. And so you have this constant pull and tug. The, the major who's in charge of the S3 shop, who is the S3, he's got all these guys in there. Well, he wants them to, he's got to have them do stuff. Well, I'm the company commander. I got to have them do stuff too. Like, the supply and, and weapons training and everybody's got to be qualified on all these things and that's my job as a company commander so and you can always you can't order that guy to do anything <laughs> yeah, and i can't tell a major what to do so you're always button heads with, with that kind of thing but anyway that's that's what that was but the a company actually this was a construction battalion uh you got uh and you got two you got the construction i guess and the and the combat well we what what we and what the a company was was the heavy equipment and maintenance section of company for the battalion. It was a big battalion, and the company was a big company. It was 200, I don't know, 240 people maybe, oh, wow. 50 people. whole lot of equipment. I mean, all kind of stuff. And, uh, and a third echelon maintenance shop. And what that was, was third echelon mean? Third echelon means it's stuff that you can't do. You, well, first echelon is operator. He can do change. The operator oh, changes all. What, what do they call it now? I don't know. Oh, I don't uh, operator does change your it's or, the, organic then direct put support put the tires and yeah. you know put air in the tires and that sort of stuff whatever the operator can do and then there's second echelon which is what your motor pool does which might be a little more complicated stuff 
Uh, and then the third echelon is where you're talking about big stuff, rebuild an engine, replace an engine, rebuild mm -hmm. a transmission, replace a transmission. And that's what we had in the A company. That, so did you enjoy company command with oh, A company? I, yeah, oh, I loved it. Did you guys move around a lot, or you basically found a spot? And no, we had a big base camp, there. and we basically stayed there. No, no, we did have we had, but we had detachments thrown out all over the place. We had land clearing detachments out, doing working for everybody, Koreans and all kinds of units. And we had uh, Koreans. Well, Koreans well, were there. South Koreans. Yeah. Oh wow! Uh, South Koreans were were big. Hmm. Had a pretty big presence there, and uh, well, drillers, the uh, people working on roads, uh, you know, just all. All kind of things, all kind of earth moving stuff and big, big stuff, equipment stuff. So uh, I know one story from your time in Vietnam, you checking on the uh, perimeter for the base camp, I assume. Okay. And, yeah. and you may have forgotten something <laughs> on your way to yeah, check I was the fire. officer of the day. It was a big base. No, no, A company. Yeah. Was it the A company base or was it the battalion's base? I think, no, it was, it was a bigger base where, where I was in 937. That was a big Pretty big. Oh, compact. you were the OD. You there were the other units on it besides the 937th headquarters, 937th, and it was pretty big. And of course, all, we all, we had a perimeter everywhere. You went. I mean, you, you just you didn't go anywhere where there wasn't a perimeter because you because you didn't know we, who the enemy was. Yeah. Well, we had to, and we had to defend ourselves from the enemy. So basically, it was a, this one had towers on it. it had, of course, it has barbed wire and all kind of stuff, and you know, so the enemy can't get in very easily. And and then it had. The towers, and I, I was the officer of the day, which meant I had to check the perimeter all the time. Well, my responsibility was for the day. It was just assigned every day. You know, I had a different OD officer of the day every day for that whole compound, and the job was just to go around and make sure everything was okay. Everybody was on their toes, and everything you know was was as it should be. And I, <laughs> I forgot to check for the password before I went out. I was going to go out and tour the perimeter, and I forgot to check in with the talk and get the password for the day. And it cycles every 24. Yeah, different okay. password every day. So I realized it as I'm going up the steps, I'm climbing up into this ladder, and I, and I thought, well, maybe I ought to turn around and go back and get the password. And I said, I said, nah, those guys are about, here I am, I'm a Caucasian. Right. <laughs> Cap, like I'm a uniform on. <laughs> maybe, they, you know, they ought to let me just come on up into this tower. And probably 99 out of 100 of them would have. But the guy, I found out later, well, actually, I could look at him and tell, but I found out later he was a pothead. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of that going yeah, on. Yeah, there was a lot of that going on at the time. Anyway, I'm, I get up there, and he's, before I can get to the top, he's pointing his M16 at me and, and gave me the, 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 the challenge. The challenge and response. Right. He gave me the challenge, and I go, I don't know it. <laughs> I don't know. Just, just let me in. Oh. Because you wanted to check out this tower and, and what, what Yeah, I just wanted to, I needed to get in that tower, look around, see the field of fire, and see the, you know, what was going on. See if everything was as it should be. Yeah. Anyway, he said, nope. I said, look, I'm coming up. I then I just got bullheaded. I just got. You were, you were, what, 25 at the time? 24, 25? Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably yeah. 24, 25. I just got stupid. I got stubborn. I said, I'm, I'm getting in there. You're the same guy that chose and, infantry number one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, and he, he kept challenging me, and I kept saying, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you I'm coming into that tower. And he kept saying he was going to shoot me. <laughs> and by the time I got up to the top to where I was getting in, the, the M16s right in my face. He didn't shoot me, thank goodness. But, but I went on into that tower. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> probably the dumbest thing that I know. Probably that you've done. the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. I'm sure. I mean, I've done some dumb things, but that's probably the worst. Just bullhead in the sack. It's a bad trait. Yes, sir. All right. So, <laughs> anyway, that, yeah, that's that story. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> Another a fun thing was, uh, I had those people laid all over the place, so they had to be paid. And we paid in script. We didn't pay in military money. And that, that script would change every once in a while uh, so that the Vietnamese wouldn't build up too much of it, you know. And Anyway. You would take it out of circulation every once in a while. You take it out of circulation yeah. every what's, once in a while. Uh, what's script? It was just, uh, it was little bills, but instead of like a dollar bill, it was a smaller thing. It was just a different form of a dollar bill, okay. basically. And uh, anyway, I had to go pay them, all these people who were all over the place. And usually, I guess every time, I did that in a helicopter. And uh, that was, and we did it in a tiny little helicopter. A tiny little helicopter. Was it a Huey? No, no, it was a... Smaller than that. I think it was even smaller than a Ranger. I don't think it was. There like was little, another little smaller one, like, almost like a bubble. Like a two-person? Yeah. Like yeah. on MASH? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, probably. Okay. It was a small helicopter. I can't remember what kind it was now. Uh, anyway... Uh, one time, a very young officer, I think he was the first lieutenant, was flying me around in it. And he said, you want to do something fun, sir? <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> and so he starts low-leveling. He got right down on the road. I mean, he wasn't very far off the road at all, which he wasn't supposed to be doing, by the way. But, anyway, but you had sanctioned so, it as the senior officer. Well, he <laughs> said, do you want to have some fun? And I said, yeah. And so anyway, he, and, and so that means it was like almost like being in a car, except you were off the road probably. I don't know how far we were off the road, maybe. 20, 30 feet or more. But if the road curved, we curved. If the road went up a hill, we went up a hill. That, 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 that's dumb nape of the <laughs> that's earth. Called that's called nape, nape of the earth. No, uh, that, that sounds too and, close <laughs> to be called nape And of the anyway, earth. that was a lot of fun. I remember that. I remember that. That was, that was a fun story. And he let me fly it for a while, too, but not very so, long. So <laughs> uh, tell me if this is wrong. That your near-death experiences were because you were either stupid or bullheaded. <laughs> well, those two, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, they all, uh, I hadn't been there very long at all. I was flying in a helicopter, and uh, we we're flying along, and I was sitting. I guess they call it the jump seat, right behind. The, you know, the, which is the pilots over here, co-pilots over here, and then there's a seat right behind. This is a Huey, and then there's all the st- seat for, seats for the other troops to be in the back. I had earphones on so I could talk to the pilot, the co-pilot. I don't remember what I was doing or where I was going. But we were flying along, and all of a sudden, I, I see it crystal clear. All these traces go right by. I could, I could have reached out and touched them. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the pilot, uh, he said... Tracers are bullets. So yeah. And, the, and immediately, I mean instantaneously, it was a good pilot. Apparently, he, uh, you get one of these numbers. We, we, we went left and up. Immediately, and then after he levels out, and they still they're not shooting at us anymore, he said, "Those sons of bitches were shooting at us." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "We're nice guys. Why the hell do they want to do that?" <laughs> he was he was funny then. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, y'all y'all were still flying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. Cool. Mm-hmm. And you came back from Vietnam, and then was active duty over for you after that? Or did you have to spend a little more time? Yeah. Uh, did you go to another unit after Vietnam? One more interesting story. Oh, yeah, sure, please. Well, actually, yeah, one more is that while I was at the S2, our Colonel, Colonel Adams, the group commander, uh, well, the two-star commander in charge of all the engineer troops in Vietnam came to our base camp. 
And the main reason he was there is we were going over into Cambodia. And, and some of the units under our command were, were, I think, building roads maybe or something to, to help that. Oh, and so the, the two-star commander wanted to go over there and look around. So uh, he picked up Adams, Colonel Adams, and some of the staff, and I was supposed to go. And I don't know what happened, but the two-star brought some, his entourage with him. And I got bumped somehow. Uh, and I was a little disappointed because I wanted to go see Cambodia too but, sure. and see what was going and on. And officially y'all weren't supposed to be there? Well, I don't remember all of that at yeah. that time. Uh, but anyway, I got bumped. That helicopter got shot down Ooh. with 11 people aboard, and all of them died. Uh, and You've never told me this story. And uh, so that was, uh, and including the, a second lieutenant. I don't know, hey, he got on that, and I didn't, but he did. <laughs> he he was a, he bumped very closely to me. Uh, he hadn't been there long. I didn't know him very well. I can't, I can't even remember his name. Just, just a nice, really nice, just looked like a kid. Yeah. And... And he was on it. Uh, so anyway, after that, they said helicopters, of course, unless you're landing or taking off or going on a mission or something that you had to do it, uh, you couldn't fly below 5,000 feet. Mm. Yeah. That was pretty bad. It's very bad. So did you have any more active duty time after Vietnam, or did, were you essentially being no, discharged? No, we got off active duty. Okay. My Brent and I both considered staying in for, if we could get Another tour to Germany, say a two or three year tour to Germany, but then we decided, nah, maybe we shouldn't do that. Because he was a year old when I went to Vietnam, so I didn't see him for a year. Whoa. And I didn't want to do that again. And I thought maybe there's a possibility I'd end up going to, we might get to go to Germany for a couple of years, but then I'd be back over in Vietnam and I'd be gone from my wife and family for another year. So we decided not to do it. So uh, my mom, your wife, has told the story a few times. I, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever heard you tell the story without mom being around. So when you came home and I hadn't seen you for a year, we picked you up at the airport, like, like DC or Richmond. I, I don't know which because I, th- yeah, I think it was DC. Yeah. Um, and back then kids that age, I was just shy of two years old could be anywhere in the car. There was no child oh, seat, yeah. no baby seat, right? No seat belts. There the were seat ba- belt was my yeah, arm. Right. <laughs> right. So uh, I, I think I was 21 months old-ish, uh, and we came to pick you up. And I was actually sitting on the bench seat in the front with Mom. She was driving. And so you can, you tell the story. Do you remember this? Yeah. Okay, we'll tell the story. I'm, oh, the other thing about you is, I, before I went to Vietnam, in between Germany and Vietnam, I had 30 days leave. And you were coming up on being a year old, and I tried to get you to walk. I wanted to see you walk before I went to Vietnam. So right. I spent huge amounts of time with him trying to get him to walk. <laughs> he never walked. And Bernard said it was like within two days after I left, he just took off and walked all over the house. <laughs> <laughs> so then when I get back. That was me being spiteful. <laughs> anyway, when we get back, yes. Uh, Bernard, uh, I was going to drive, I guess. And, and Paul would have been in the middle, in between us, in the front seat. Well, he wouldn't get near me. He didn't know who I was. He had no idea who I was. And he was, what, you were two years old two, then. Almost two years two, old, didn't yeah. have any idea who I was. And was scared of me. So It's just been mom and me. So <laughs> he kept crawling over Brenda. So he would have been between Brenda and the, the door, basically, <laughs> if I drove. So Brenda, Brenda ended up driving, and he sat real as close as he could get to his 
his mother over there. I'm still kind of like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what it was. I was tired. She was going to drive anyway. But because I was sitting there, he wanted to get between her and the door. Yeah. So I had to, that's what it was. I had to end up driving. Even though as tired as I was, I drove because if she tried to drive, you were between her and the door right, right there beside her. And she couldn't drive that way. Because he so, was trying to get away from you. He was trying to get away from me, yeah. yeah I'm like, why is this strange man he, getting in her car? He was, he was kind of, he was very leery of me for probably, for a few days. And I, I've always I'm said, st- I'm still leery of you. <laughs> I guess after, after a while, he finally said, well, this guy's been sleeping in the same bed with my mom. I guess he's all right, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> he finally got over it. <laughs> I didn't really understand how any of that worked at the time. All right, so we we leave Vietnam, leave active duty, and I'm going to stop talking for a while and let Daniel and Zach start talking. I wanted to actually, I know you wanted to stop talking, but um, when you came back from your deployment, you also had a kid that didn't recognize you, was afraid of you. Yeah, I I observed that in the airport, yeah. Yeah, I guess it was my wife, my three kids, my parents, and my in-laws were there, and it was for R&R. Towards the end of my deployment, I took my R&R at the end. So in the Richmond airport, I was very happy to see my entire family, uh, especially my children and my, my wife. Um, and so Zach and Lindsay, my older two, gave me giant hugs. I kneeled down and gave them a really big bear hug. And then uh, I'm, I'm looking at Melissa, and she's standing back like, what in the world is going on? <laughs> and so I, I don't approach her directly because I knew she was a little freaked out. She was about the same age I was when you freaked me out. And so I went to give Lisa a hug, and then I'm, I'm looking over at Melissa like maybe there's an opportunity where she's going to warm up to me. She's backing up. She's getting away from me. <laughs> and then I hug, I think, you you and Mom, and then my, my in-laws, Alan and Joanne. And then I'm like, all right, I, I'm, I only got one person left here. I need to hug, hug my uh, youngest. And she kept moving away from me, and I said, I guess I, I'm not going to try. And so I don't remember what it was like getting in the car, but we got in this – same car and went home uh and apparently melissa had been sleeping in the same bed with lisa uh makes sense right she's not two years old yet and uh she's our baby so lisa's gonna let the the baby stay with her while the husband's gone me and apparently i i stay up a little bit later than lisa lisa and melissa have fallen asleep in bed i get in bed mel rolls over in, in the middle of the night and realize there's this giant person in in the bed that hadn't been there in about a year, and she started hollering. Oh man, it was something. Yeah, good times. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we I told that for episode zero, but I think we edited that out. So we, that might not be in there. That's, yeah. that's you trying to pull it back in. I appreciate. that. Well, I also I, it's a cool like cross generation story. It's like yeah, and uh, yeah. my dad and I are hoping uh, Zach doesn't ever have a story like that. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. say I was afraid of my father when he came home too. Uh, three generations ago. Well, maybe you have to keep the streak going, Zach. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's good. I'm going to stop doing this and let you two engage, my dad. Zach, Even though wanna... I'm having a blast because about half of what you're saying is new to me. <laughs> you want to ask a question, Zach? Hmm. All right. Um, so we talked about Vietnam, and you've also gone overseas another time, correct? That was in Desert Storm. Desert Storm, yeah. How long were you? Where were you? What country? That was Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and a little bit of Kuwait. What year was that? Because I never learned about it. 1990 and 91. So what was that like compared to Vietnam? Uh, you were a higher rank and you were older. So yeah, I was commanding a brigade at that point, mm-hmm. an engineer group. And they, uh, that was uh, Vietnam when I got there. was the, the big difference was Vietnam 
was, of course, jungle and rice paddies, and this was desert. Uh, and then also this, uh, during Desert Storm, it was not a developed theater. It was, was brand new. We were just moving into it. So none of the su supply lines were set up, you know, so we, we had a lot of trouble getting things, especially spare parts and stuff for the equipment and all. Uh, and, and it just wasn't a developed theater. Vietnam was a developed theater. We had supply lines, base camps, every, you know, you could, you could get whatever you needed, uh, usually. And, you know, you had mess halls and every kind of thing, and we didn't have any of that in Desert Storm. So it's a lot, a lot of differences. Yeah. You got any funny stories? <laughs> Maybe not funny, ha-ha, <laughs> just funny, any, uh, different? <laughs> any crazy stories? I don't know. Uh, did, uh, you had three active duty battalions under you, or a couple active duty battalions? Well, it varied. I had uh, started out with, I think, three, went down to two, and then up to five during the actual, you know, getting ready to actually go into Iraq. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, a mobilization, we got, it was, we were the headquarters company. So to pack up the headquarters company, lock, stock, and barrel, uh, all the equipment, everything, we did all of that, mobilized 19 days. We got called up the day before Thanksgiving, and 19 days later, the whole company, lock, stock, and barrel, sitting in Saudi Arabia in a, uh, in a huge, huge tent city. And that was bad. <laughs> all, all those and, and, and to, to be clear, I, I was a senior in college. Yeah. You were at the time five years old, younger than I am now. So you were forty-six. I was 40, forty-five or forty-six. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's say ninety. Yeah, I was forty-five when I went. Right. Yeah, forty-five. Yeah, you were forty-five. That's right. And uh, that was that was pretty bad. Uh, but we were there about a week, and then we moved out into the desert. And. Uh, <laughs> I think of another scat story almost right away. <laughs> well, it, the, the whole, uh, that whole, so, I mean, we're, we're animals, right? We, that has to happen. And when you're so, in an austere environment, it, it becomes yeah. different for sure. So anyway, we, we, we just moved, you know, uh, we moved out into the desert. And, and our turn, there was you know, lots and lots of units going out there. Because we were part of the mobilization of the 7th Corps out of Germany. It was located in Germany, and it drew elements from all over the world, I guess, to support it. Uh, and the first division was part of that, and there was a British division that was part of the corps. When you say first division, big red one. Big red one, yeah. yeah. And uh, and we eventually, and so uh, we just moved a lot. We we lived in tents. Well, the first night we were in the desert, we just slept on a cot with no other tent because we didn't know uh, what was going on. Didn't take time to set tents up. And anyway, after that, we just we lived in tents, or we'd slept in the back of a track vehicle or or something, and uh, uh, and just moved around a lot and and uh, you know it was it was the weather was reasonable when we got there in early December and then uh, started getting pretty cold we thought it was gonna be a one, one of the stories when we were packing up that came to me because all the stuff we were getting back was from people who were there in July and August you know people had gone earlier 18th Airborne Corps had gone earlier and we were getting back all this intel about you know how hot it was so we're packing up everything, and they came to me and they said, sir, do we need to take these tent heaters? They're pot, you know, just metal things that you put diesel fuel in and light up, and they heat up, they'll heat a big tent. They didn't think, they, they didn't want trouble with packing all of that. I said, yes, take them. Because I, I know that you can be cold when you, <laughs> you don't think you're going to be cold, it can still be cold, it can get cold in the desert. And man, they were lifesavers. We were frozen to death. Because it was in the 20s at night in, in, in Iraq. Uh, uh, in January and February, 
And so those those that was the best decision probably ever made. About <laughs> sounds like a good one. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and anyway, that that was a that, that was that was quite a, a job. Nineteen days, lock, stock, and barrel, getting over there. Uh, and then we moved out in the desert. And uh, the thing about it, then it rained a lot in uh, into December, January, and into February. It December, a lot. January is the rainy season. Over there. Was was yeah. mud, muddy, a lot of mud. You know, I think I, I'm affected by SAD. What is it? Seasonal affective disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get <laughs> especially it starts especially, yeah after you know. 11 or 12 days straight of, you know, rain and clouds, you know, you start to getting really down. Uh, so, and then, and then when it stopped raining, there were sandstorms. And you could see them coming, and we would just all put on our bandanas, you know, we pull out these big <laughs> handkerchiefs and wrap them over our noses and batten all the hatches down. I remember <laughs> your big Quonset hut tent, Paul probably knows, you know what a Quonset hut is, a big round building like that. Mm. Well, these were tents, and they were with metal frames, and we put them up to work on vehicles, on big big vehicles and stuff. And uh, one of those sandstorms, I, I remember seeing that big tent. I mean, the thing was probably what, 15, 20 feet high in the middle yep. and probably 20 feet across at the bottom. And, you know, long enough to do a deuce and a half, probably 20 feet long, 30 feet long. That whole big tent was just rolling across the desert. <laughs> 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 and soldiers were running after it. And they, <laughs> they, they got it, so they brought it back and put it down. Yeah, sandstorms were fun. So, uh, so you guys did a lot of uh, preparation, a lot of we training. Got, we got put on the operational control, or OPCON, as the military says, to the 1st Infantry Division. 1st Infantry Division was selected to be the division that was first into Iraq as part of you know, the invasion. And so part, part of the ground war. After, the, yeah. the ground war. We, the 1st Infantry Division was, were the first people into Iraq. We supported them. In fact, some of the first people into Iraq were members of our group because... Uh, there was a, a berm, a big earthen berm built the whole length of the border between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. I don't, I don't remember who built it. I don't know who built it, whether it was the Saudis or Iraq. Probably the Saudis. I don't know. But it was huge. And so... By he, how tall was it? Oh, 15 feet tall, oh, wow. 20 feet high. I don't know, big. And, of course, you didn't want to drive over it with vehicles and tanks and stuff. So we had a bulldozers, had to, or tanks with blades on the front of them, had to knock holes in that big enough to drive stuff through. And our, our guys did a lot of that. So in terms of physically getting into Iraq, some of the guys in our group were some of the first ones into Iraq. And and then we, we uh, oh, <laughs> I remember another thing that's funny. We're going through the right, we're getting ready for the, it's almost time to go. And we're going through the chow line. And we get to the end of the chow line and hit some people with, needles and medicine stuff that are going to give us an injection. So they called me and said, sir, what, what's going on? <laughs> I said, I don't know. So I go and try to find out. And it just said it was, it had something to do with uh, inoculating us against some sort of, of uh, nerve gas or something, you know, because the, the big, the big scary thing about Desert Storm was that Hussein had used chemical weapons on his own people, the Kurds. He'd, he'd gassed him, and we were afraid that, you know, our big fear was that he would gas us. And so this was a, an inoculation for that. I think fairly new, <laughs> wasn't tried out. Was it for, was it for anthrax? <laughs> I, I, I don't think, it could have been. I don't even remember. So, so uh, <clears throat> guy I work with, Gene Burke, he was one of uh, the last one we just published. 
And he was in the, what he says, he calls it the first desert storm because he went back for Operation Iraqi Freedom and he calls it the second desert storm. And he said they got anthrax. Uh, it could have been anthrax. And he said they, they had not been vetted on uh, like even small animals. They just, yeah, they they just shot said, you all up. So they told me that and they said, you know, you got to take it. And so I said, okay, I hope it doesn't, we don't get two heads or something over this. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I went back. I, told, I said, okay, we got to take it, guys. So I let them inject me, and everybody goes through the line and takes it. That was fun. Uh, and then we go through the line, and I mean, go through the berm. Of course, and those infantrymen, I, they, were, they were great. I mean, when, it, when, the, when the flag went up, so to speak, when it was time to invade Iraq, they could not wait. I mean, they were tired over there. They wanted to kill some people. I mean, they were, and we came along behind them at that point. And, of course, before we did it, there was, the, you know, the rocket's red glare. I mean, there was just, we spent a lot of artillery and a lot of bombing and all kind of things. It was, you're talking about your mad minute? Yeah. It was a lot, a big mad minute. Or the million-dollar minute. Yeah. And a million-dollar minute, yeah. And, uh and anyway, and one of the things we fired was uh, the multiple launch rocket. Yeah, multiple MLRS. Yeah, multiple tube or something lunch, rocket launch. Multiple anyway, launch rocket system. There you go. Fired. It could fire like twenty at a time or something. I don't know what it was. Big thing, but these things go off, and I was excited. But what they had was they had inside each one of those was a whole bunch of anti personnel, smaller things, about the size of a, a little bigger than a softball, and and then they would just scatter all over the place and go off. You know, so that would really clear a pretty big area. Well, is that we, exactly what the MLRS? <laughs> that's what I'm doing right now. We we got multiple launch rocket system. That's yeah. what it was, and yeah. we uh, and we got up there, and when we first stopped, we were, we were following along behind the first infantry, and uh, we stopped to I don't know what for. I don't even remember. But we get out of the vehicles, and one of the first things I see is one of these things unexploded. <laughs> I said. It was, your, it was your own stuff. <laughs> it was our stuff, yeah. I said, oh, everybody back in the vehicles. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it... I mean, we could probably take a, you know, a break to go to the bathroom or something. I said, everybody stop where you are. If you got to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, but then get right back in the vehicles. And and then we then we just put a vehicle in front, and he was looking real closely, and we just followed along. Cause they were, then we got, out, we got out of where they were. But that was, that was fun. Uh, but nobody got hurt. We didn't get hurt. Uh, and and then after it was over. You know, it was a hundred hours. I think they said it was over. Yep. And what we and then we what we saw on the battlefield was just destroyed APCs, armored personnel carriers, and old tanks and everything. And you know, they were talking about Saddam Hussein had this hugest, largest tank army in the world and all that stuff. Well, I don't know whether it was the largest or how many tanks he had, but they were all old. They were old Chinese and Russian things. They didn't even have, they had no uh, infrared, a little bit of uh, night vision maybe on a, on a handful of them, not many. And so we, we came along and then what our job was then at that point, combat engineer, combat engineer heaven. Because we nobody was shooting at us, and we got to clean up the battlefield. You got to blow a bunch of stuff up. <laughs> we, <laughs> we would take anti-tank weapons, which we had a bunch of, because we, you know, we might have had to fight. We didn't know. Uh, combat engineers have to be secondary MOS of infantry, and so these guys were going crazy shooting up these old tanks, blowing them up with with anti-tank weapons, and we would, uh, we would find lots and lots of artillery rounds and things, and we would drag them in this big hole a crater of some kind, uh, or we'd dig it, you know, with a bucket hole or something, 
and drag all these artillery rounds in there, put a little C4 in it, you know, <laughs> go back, <laughs> blow that thing up. I mean, comment internet, we were having a ball. And it, it, was all, it got boring. Blowing stuff up got boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never blown so much stuff up that it got boring. I, I stopped going out there. I said, you, you just go ahead, have a nice day. Well, you were telling me at one point there was a bunch of stuff put together, a bunch of trash, functional equipment hours earlier, but now it's not functional anymore, and you kind of are stacking a bunch of that kind of stuff up, and y'all were putting a ton of demolitions on it, and it was the first time you had this thought. I imagine you had a few more times. You're like, I wonder what the book says on how far we're supposed to be yeah. away from this. <laughs> yeah, what's the standoff distance for this? You know, when you got like, I don't know how many, but probably at least 50 big artillery rounds, probably 155s or something, in a hole, what's the standoff? Because we blew up, we did that. We blew up some of those. But anyway, we just got back a, what we thought was a safe. Don't make it. You, you know what I think the answer is? Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my biggest concern at that point just became safety because, you know, these guys were going nuts. But well, nobody, nobody got hurt again. Well, nobody got hurt uh, doing that. But you, under the active duty battalions that were under your command, you, you did lose a, a handful of guys, right? Uh they, they, they had dug in. Fifth Corps decided to oh, stop. Oh, not by in. not by combat though. Sorry, not by combat. Uh, yeah, we lost within the group. I think six guys, but it was one of them was a uh, one of them was just a vehicle accident in the dust. They just ran into another vehicle and killed a couple of them. And um, the other one was the uh, the company commander had a what he thought was a good idea. He dug. He set up a perimeter and he and he dug down into the ground to build these for the troops all around the perimeter where they could sleep. Uh, it was easy to do with all the equipment that he had, and uh, and they braced it up with timbers and stuff, you know. And one of them, one of them caved down and killed. Four is what I, what think, I recall. I think, yeah. I think four just caved in on him, killed four. That and he got, he was relieved. I tried to stand up for him, but the corps said, nope, he's got to go. Hmm. Uh, so he was relieved. The battalion commander was relieved. Company commander was relieved. I guess they thought about relieving me, and then they said, ah, well, he's too far removed, maybe. So they didn't relieve me. I mean, I was going, I was going to go back home. And I think maybe, maybe by that time the war was even over, and we were, we were leaving anyway. So they didn't bother with relieving me. Uh, but those two active army guys, the company commander and the battalion commander, were relieved. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he was trying to do the right thing, and. Uh... Yeah, just unfortunate, and it was a very unfortunate thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You 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 stay well, in the guard for one other thing, but then yeah. <laughs> this is just a little interesting story. But the ordinance, we went over to corps headquarters one day, and they we were talking, and the Air Force guy was talking, and they were just asking him, you know, what he was doing, giving giving the commander, corps commander, a break, a brief, and uh, and, and during his report, he said that they were that the Air Force was dropping 500-pound bombs on individual tanks. Seems like overkill. On individual, uh, yeah, definitely. And he realized it, too. I think they were just testing them, you know, just ch- seeing what they could do. But 500-pound bombs on tanks. And then the, the grunts, the tankers, uh, I can't remember exactly when I heard this, but they said that they could, at night, particularly at night, they could be as much as 3,000 meters away with the new, I guess, M1 Abrams at that time. I guess that's what they were. They had infrared. And if they could see the other tank, they could hit it 
from, and of course it's flat. It was not a whole lot out there. Out there. Uh, there was some stuff, but not much. They could hit the other tank. All they had to do was put that infrared crosshair on it. They could see the engine. A lot of times they kept them running at night because it was cold, so you could see that heat signature. Put the X on that the infrared scope, scope, press the button, and the tank disappeared. So can can you imagine yeah. if you're an Iraqi guy sitting there in his tank yeah. <laughs> and the tank next to you? <laughs> yeah. Just all of a sudden, no, nobody around, just nothing, just gone. That's why they didn't, they didn't last very long. That's why the war lasted yeah. about four days. Yeah. Yeah. We had so much superior firepower technology, they just... Oh, the other... Talking about it. here all day. I, I we got... had the 1st Infantry Division guy, commander, and I had to go, I think, practically every day to his briefings. And uh, he, uh, he was a bear, a real bear on communication. And he, his, his commo officer had a chart up there every day. It had all the units in the division down one side. We were up there. And then the times, and they varied every day, times of combo checks. And if you got a combo check and you didn't answer your radio, you were in deep trouble with this commander. So fortunately, my, I was always, my unit always had a check because <laughs> I made sure, because well, they emphasized it. One day, I think it was like his first brigade or something. It was a big unit. They didn't make the had an X on his combo check for that day, for the previous day. And the commander of the first brigade wasn't there, but like his, I don't know, maybe his XO or the S3 or somebody. I think it was a major. It's a bad it, day for that major. It was a terrible day for that major. I, 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 don't, I won't say all the words that the commander said, but the basic thing, the division commander said, looked down at the guy and said, stand up. <laughs> and then he started calling him a whole bunch of names. He said, get up. Over here, and don't come back until you know how to run up, run a radio. But I mean, he just oh, he just laid him out. He literally ran him out of the tent and just cursing at him the whole time. It was bad. Send a message to everybody else. So so, <laughs> so it was very unlikely that people weren't going to be manning the radio. Although one time during the invasion, during when we were going into Iraq, we were on. We we could hear him. We knew it was him because we knew his voice. He was trying to get hold of a unit, and he couldn't get hold of them. And oh man, he was. <laughs> and, it, and it could have been. Uh, it was something. awful. It could have been. It had nothing to do with humans. It could have been a, a technical issue. Who who knew? But anyway, they yeah. were. They weren't. He thought he was getting through, and they weren't answering. So he he said, "Somebody doesn't answer that phone. I'm gonna that radio. I'm gonna come over there and relieve everybody on the plane." And he just, uh, just on and on. <laughs> I, I I agree with his emphasis on communications because if you don't have communications, you got nothing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You got nothing. All right, it, now, it was good emphasis. But anyway, you had to be there, I guess, to hear him. But he was he was something. You have uh, a little guy too. Well, they tend to be the loudest. <laughs> uh, you have now quadrupled the number of stories I've heard uh, about uh, Vietnam okay. and Desert Storm, right, and, right. and we can stay here the, the rest of the time. I, I'm fine with that. We got well, we got a little while. All right. You got, you got even we more? got a basketball game to go to, Daniel. Exactly. Oh, is that right? Yeah, we can mention it. Uh, Randolph Macon's playing some yeah. team from New Jersey, right? Yeah, in the you know the the Division Three playoffs, you know the Mad Mark Mad. You and March Mom, are, you and Mom are big fans. We are. Yeah. You're, you're a Randolph Macon alum. Is that no, right? no, no. But but my wife was a teacher. She taught it. Okay. Macon, well, she retired now. And I we grew up. And it's right there in town. Less than a couple miles yeah. away from the school. So yeah. we we. Brent and I tried to go to all the home men's basketball games, mm -hmm. and we went up to the tournament in Salem. Last and they've weekend. been and they've been good. 
Yeah, they've had good teams now. for the past, I don't know, seven, eight years maybe. Yeah, it's good fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is fun. Very cool. So uh, that, that was a lot about your military. We talked about your childhood beforehand. Then you made the silly decision after uh, you got off active duty back in the, uh, I guess you got off active duty in 70, 71? 70. Yeah, 70. Right, right at the end of 70. You, you made well, 71 or early 71, I guess. You, you made a bad decision to go to law school. To become a, lawyer. a couple of years later, I worked at Vepco for. A couple oh, of that's years after. right. <clears throat> yeah, you were two years for the power company. Vepco is what they used to call Dominion Power back hmm. in the day. Oh, okay. Essentially, it's, it's mm-hmm. a probably changed structure. Electric and power company is what it was. Yeah, you were checking meters, right? Oh no, that was the job I had during law school. Oh. I worked full time in an office for Vepco for a couple of years. What did you do? But when I was in, well, was it was in a, it was, it was not much of a job. I was in it. We, we were in like a training section, so we developed training stuff. Okay. And also worked on projects, pro- that sort of thing. Right. Um, that kind of stuff uh, bored you to no end. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty boring. But no, the, the meter reading was when I was in law school during the summer. I read meters for Vepco, and that that was that was fun with it with the dogs and. and Tell <laughs> us your uh, most memorable or favorite dog story when you were checking meters. Oh, dog story! I don't know a couple. I guess a couple of those. They told us we weren't supposed to jump fences. You know, we were supposed to go around and use a gate. Well, every meter reader in the world, including me, jumped fences. Because it was, they, you know. It was, it was faster. It was a whole lot faster. It was easy to jump. I was young. I could jump a fence pretty easily. And these were meters on people's houses? Yeah, on okay. the house. You had to go to each individual meter and read it. Now, on big apartments, we love to get a, you get a big apartment book. It's real thick. And you're like, oh, look at all these meters. But they're all right in the bank. Or a lot of them. So, you know, and you could just go right down. <laughs> you mm-hmm. could read it real quick. And, uh, but you had to physically read them. I think you do it electronically now. I don't oh, think sure, remotely. They got yeah. meter read, readers now. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, well, I jumped, I'm jumping fences, and I jump a fence, and I go up and read the meter, and I'm heading to the, and out comes this German shepherd from under the porch. I hadn't seen him. <laughs> Big old, and he took off after me. Fortunately, I made it to the fence for, before he got me. Uh, I jumped over the fence, but he scared the devil out of me. Uh, and and another time, a much smaller dog, same sort of thing. He, he actually caught hold of my pants, and I was dragging him over the fence. Uh, they did give us a spray, pepper spray kind of thing. I think I had to spray him to make him let go of my pants so mm. I could get over the fence. Whoa. And then, <laughs> then another time, I'm leaving. I'm walking over through the yard. No fences anywhere, wide open yard. And here come these two big, I don't know, they weren't labs. They were like maybe Chesapeake Bay Retrievers or something. Just like they were going to eat me up. I mean, I didn't know, but I'm in an open area. Two of them coming after me, growling, barking, carrying on. I thought they were going to attack me. So as I'm running, I just I'm go, and I just caught them both right across the face. Mm. <laughs> just lucky. And I stopped them, of course. They didn't, they didn't bother me anymore. They probably just wanted to be pet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It certainly didn't sound like it, though. I mean, I'm a dog person. I like you love dogs, dogs but, yeah. But, but I wouldn't take any chances with them. Makes sense. Yeah, and then the other really funny thing, I was sometime the meters were inside houses. And there was some apartments somewhere in Richmond, I don't remember now, and, and where the meter was. And you got little special written instructions that would tell you in the book where the meter was if it was unusual. So it said you had to you know, open this door and you go upstairs into a hallway and that's where the meter was. Well, I didn't know it was the actual living space. That hall, I mean, there were bedrooms off of that hall and rooms. And anyway, I'm, I just read it and I go up there, I go up these steps, Read the meter, turn around, and here's this bedroom, doors wide open. Here's one of the largest women I've ever seen in my life. 
totally naked, <laughs> sitting on the bed looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, hello, when I took off. And I got over there. But anyway. <laughs> you really got Daniel with that one. <laughs> that, that that, was, another story I've never heard. That so. was funny. Yeah, I'd say so. Wow. <laughs> and you were a law student while you were doing this. Yes. <laughs> At Richmond, right? Yeah. The meter reading thing, yeah. So uh, when you came back from Vietnam, were uh, you well-received by your uh, peers? No, no. So tell us about that. Well, I don't know. I People, you know, big difference, by the way, between... Desert Storm and Vietnam, but no, no people. Well, hold on, let's let's start there. What, tell us what it was like when you came back from Desert Storm. Oh, Desert Storm, you know, you know I wasn't a hero. I mean, I just, you know, I, but you were willing to do. I stuff. had to do a lot of things. I had to close my law practice and do a lot of stuff and go through a lot to to do it. But you know, uh, anyway, everybody says I'm a hero. They made me the marshal, the grand marshal of the annual Christmas parade in Ashland, and you wow. know, just and people came and uh, I had to close. I had to close my law practice down, and I owned a little building there, and uh, and I had to get that set up when I got back. And people came and helped. Just we yeah. didn't ask them; they just came and helped. Uh, Mom stuff. Ma, ma, mom asked. But. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them. Didn't. Well, a lot uh, of people volunteered without and, asking. And uh, it just it was just wonderful. Everybody was just very supportive. But Vietnam, the main thing I remember was just silence. People didn't say talk about it. At well, all. Hold on, before we go there, well, care. when you came back from Dead Storm, you were. Uh, I can't remember the name of the group. It was uh, Sons of the American Revolution, I think. Yeah. They'd given you their national award that year, yeah. right? Yeah. You got a national award by uh, a pretty old society, yeah. essentially. Yes. Yeah. I was there for that. It was, uh, I, was, I was very proud of you that well, night. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, I was proud of you my entire life, especially <laughs> that night. How old were you at that point? I just graduated college. Yeah. I just graduated college. Yeah. yeah. And you were in your... Mid mid forties, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you were well honored when you came back from Iraq, but Vietnam was different. Yeah, Vietnam was different. If anybody said anything about it, if, if they found out, because you weren't you weren't celebrating. Oh, I wasn't telling you. Yeah. I don't know if if uh, if they found out that I'd been to Vietnam. Mostly, like in law school, mo- the most the biggest comment was, you know, were you stupid? What'd you do that for? You know, it, I'd have been in law in law school. I would have been better. I would have been better received if I'd gone to Canada. You know, than than going to Vietnam. That was kind of the. Oh, there were some other Vietnam veterans there. And you I mean, mean they didn't they didn't shun us or anything or make or yell at us or anything. I wasn't anything like that. It was just like they thought it was we were wrong to go. Like you were sub uh, species of well, human. Well, not that bad. And they just thought we we shouldn't have done it. That it was wrong for us to go over there. Fight the war. And Canada, is that where people went to avoid the draft? Yeah. Many people left this country and, and stayed in Canada for years. And that that was like, for a time, the popular opinion was that going to Canada and avoiding the draft was a better, a more moral choice than Yes, by many up. people. Now, of course, not everybody. But mm-hmm. like today, you know, there was a big division about that. But many yeah. people thought that was more moral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the draft was on, and it's scary. Yeah, because I yeah. mean, we lost fifty over fifty thousand soldiers over there, right? I mean, yeah, it, but, yeah, about fifty-five. Yeah, yeah, not not an easy thing to say. Sure, draft me, I'll go fight a war in a place I don't understand, and not sure yep. what's going on over there. Yeah, pretty somber. We didn't mean to go there. So tell us about law school, <laughs> the good parts. 
There were no good parts. <laughs> was it hard? <laughs> Law school was very hard. How long was it? Uh, three years. Uh, biggest, I guess the, the biggest rat year for her, not rat year, freshman year for law school was, uh, I think, almost every course except one. I think one had, you took an exam at the end of the semester and then took another exam, but most of them, you went the whole year. You didn't, you know, you didn't write any papers. You didn't, no tests, no quizzes. You just were, you know, you went to class and you absorbed the material and you took one exam. And I always thought they were getting us ready for the bar exam by doing that. I don't know because that's... So literally, you went the entire <laughs> academic year. The entire year and it all rested on uh, on that one exam. That sounds similar to, uh, we were talking to Daniel's buddy who's in his third year of medical school right now and uh, they, ha- they kind of do the same thing. So a ton yeah. of information, and then you have this amazing anxiety-ridden uh, day <laughs> yeah. of, of test taking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was hard. <laughs> I shouldn't tell us either. Zach is in here. Wow! But there was Zach, one. <laughs> Zach, is eight, Zach is eighteen. <laughs> that was one course. It was commercial law, and it was very hard. And I quickly got over my head, and so I did the very mature thing i just stopped going to class <laughs> and other words, instead of trying to figure it out i just kind of gave up not and, and it's, it's just not like me i don't know why i did that that's very unlike you. and and i and i thought well you know what's gonna happen at the end of the year and i said well i guess i just said to myself well i'll figure it out at the end of the year so when he got to me towards the end of the year and i said i gotta take this exam <laughs> and so i then i i just dedicated myself every spare minute to figuring out what commercial law was all about. And I was able to find some, some cliff note kind of things that people had some old exams and things that, which was all legal. I mean, they had a book down file in school. You could study. And I just really concentrated and focused on commercial law for every, just about every spare minute. And I finally understood it. It all came clear to me. There was a system. You know, again, 30,000-foot view, I understood it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I understood it. All, you know, it was like a light, the clouds parted, and I understood the whole thing. There were 103 people in my class. I got to second highest grade. Wow. Never went to class. I was in so, class. So, <laughs> so, Zach, the moral of that story is <laughs> skip all the classes, cram at the end, and you two can be and second I, And I've never done that, okay. Zach, for anything else. I've never done that. We're being sarcastic, else. Zach. But that was, that's not the Did way to do it. Did you score second highest in any other class that you went Say to? Again? Did you score second highest in any other class that you went to? Oh, I, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so you did the best in the class you skipped. Does that sound like good but, advice, Daniel? But it could have gone the other way, Zach. I could have failed, and that would have meant a whole lot of extra stuff. But you didn't. Well, I know, but uh, he, he was, got he got lucky. Zach. It was a recipe for failure. He, he had a, what it was. Yeah, the clouds parted. They, they, <laughs> there was a really good chance they weren't going to part for it. <laughs> yeah, if they hadn't parted, I, who it'd have been tough. So tell us about uh, prepping and being anxious about taking the bar. Oh yeah, well that's a big anxiety. Uh, yeah, well, I took a you know of course you just study you study for well I I graduated I went to summer school and graduated in December. Well finished in December didn't walk until so May. you didn't do a full three academic years no, i did but it included, but it included summer, summer. so you did fast one than semester the... in summer school right. so i was finished with the coursework in december then got my degree diploma in may so i was able to study full-time for the bar exam so from mm. from december to i think we when are we finished early december when we finished the semester bar exam i believe was in in the february that time that entire time i studied full-time more than four seven days a week 
studying for the bar exam, and I took a bar exam preparatory course too. And uh, and I and I remember <laughs> Brenda and I didn't have any money because she was teaching school and I wasn't working except well part time job. We didn't have a whole lot of money. We had two kids and not a whole lot of money when I was in law school, and so we didn't get the paper because we were going to spend money on the paper. <laughs> so I got up real early and I went over to one of my neighbor's houses <laughs> and borrowed their paper off their sidewalk. Came over and I remember sitting on out, you know, down where I mean, Papa lived, 307 West Francis. Yep. And I sat on the stoop and I, and that's how they notified you. The way you found out whether you passed the bar exam or not was, was your name in the paper as having passed. They listed all the people. They didn't send you, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't wow. remember if I got a letter later on or not. But uh, that's how you found it. So I, I opened that newspaper up and I started going down the list and thank goodness I passed it. Because a lot of people didn't. I think the pass rate was, Seventy-some percent that year. So I guess you'd say most people did, but a whole lot didn't. So I passed, yeah. Well, the, p- people think the bar are pretty bright, accomplished, hard-working folks, typically. Yeah, and so... For the most part, yeah. except for me in commercial law. Right. <laughs> well, it's just a different kind of dedication <laughs> there at the end. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway. All right, so uh, you passed the bar, so now you can practice law. <laughs> you could have... Uh, started your own practice, which would have been really hard because you didn't have any assets or means to start a practice, I'm guessing. Uh, you could have joined, tried to join a, a giant firm as a really junior guy and worked 100 hours a week kind of I thing. I didn't want to do that. I knew I didn't want to do that. So what were your thoughts? I didn't really know what I did. I didn't really know what I I'll tell you, I didn't really like law school all that much. Uh, course it's a I mean it's a really good degree to have I mean it's kind of like the rules of the game you know that's just everybody has to operate under law this is a government of law that's a basic principle of our democracy is it's a government of law not men but law and so it's important it's really good to to have a a basic knowledge and understanding of of all that stuff but uh, I didn't know really what I wanted to do with it and uh, and it was a minor recession going on at the time so jobs were hard to come by so I ended up applying, you know, all around, and the best thing I got was not law school, was with the state. I was the, I got hired as the assistant secretary to the Alcoholic Beverage Control Board, which is the three, the, the board is three political appointees who run that, that ABC board. And there was a secretary, assistant secretary, and then of course then there were other people of equal rank with us. And so I got that job and I worked it for about 11 years. And then, man, I think it was Well, that ju- you were assistant secretary and then secretary. And then secretary. Yeah. Assistant secretary about five years, maybe six years, and then secretary for the next And what years year. were you there? Ooh, well, let's see, when I finished law school. 75, I finished law school. Uh, so I would have been 75 to 86, roughly. And uh, that's what I start to say. I, basically, I, I was responsible for... Uh, Advising the board, it wasn't practice of law, but it involved a law degree. Uh, advising the board on on legal issues and and uh, doing administrative things, and we ran the regulatory program. Uh, means basic principle that the government, the executive branch, operates under is the legislature passes a law, but all these executive agencies fill in the details. And the devil is always in the details. Mm. So the legislature, you know, they can't write detailed laws. They they direct the the basic law and the general principles and you know what what they want. 
that's what gets in the law. And then, but then there are lots and lots and lots of detailed questions that have to be filled in. And that's where unelected bureaucrats like myself get to write it. Mm. Now we have to have public, we have to have public hearings and, and we have to get input from the public. All those people affected by it have to be given notice and, you know, and we get all that input and everything. It's not, it's not just, we sit around and make up whatever we want to make up, but we, we go through a big public process and we, that was, that was part of my job to do all of that. And, uh, and, but then we would, we would get all that input and then consistent with the, the law and intent of the law and all the input, we drafted the regulations that hopefully answered the questions that enable people to operate under that law, you know? And so that's, that's what we did. And then, but governor, it was Rob, I think, Governor Rob, who appointed some really stupid people. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. They were just- It's pretty clear. They were stupid. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were uneducated, and they were stupid. And they <laughs> have you ever heard? Have you ever heard him talk like this? Zach? Two no. of them, yeah. Two of them were. I mean, they were. You know, they were. God created them. They created in His image, just like I am. I don't hate them. I don't. Have, you know, I love them. But that's what they were. And and they and they started. And I had to advise them on legal issues. And they were. They would ask me, "Well, can we do this?" And I'd say, "No, you can't do that." And they didn't like to hear that. They didn't want to be told they couldn't do something. And I'm getting more and more. And then they took away what job protection I had. People back then had uh, the grievance procedure. In other words, they couldn't just fire you, okay? They couldn't just fire you. If they tried to take personnel action against you, you could do what's called grieve it. And that meant you went through this process. You could go back to the person who, gave, who, tried, who fired you uh, and then get him to reconsider and now I think, and, and then you appeal to a panel of employees uh, and they would have to make a decision. And you had to testify and witnesses and all of that, but that was a grievance procedure. So they couldn't just fire you. You had to have a, uh, I mean, uh, for performance. I mean, I guess if you committed a crime or you'd done something bad, they could and you and you couldn't grieve. But This is the state? Or this is the state, okay. this is the state. And, uh, and so Rob, decided it would be a good idea to... It's Charles Robb. Charles right? Robb, the governor, yeah. yeah. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's son-in-law. Right. Uh, <clears throat> he decided it would be a good idea that we got rid of that grievance procedure for all the people who worked directly for the political appointees, which in this case was me. I worked directly for the three board members who were political appointees. And so he changed that. And in a combination of that, losing my protection, in other words, those, those three guys, two of which were not too good, could have fired me just because, and, you know, they didn't like my looks that day. Or you uh, disagreed with them or yeah, whatever. whatever. Yeah, whatever. Any, any kind of reason, they could just let me go. And I'm, here I am telling them no, you know, and I just, I thought, you know, this is just not a good place to be. And so I called for a guy I went to high school with, who was an attorney small practice. It was at an office in Ashland, an office in Rockville where he lived. There was three of them in there at the time. I said, would you? I called him up. I said, to clear blue sky. I said, would you like to have another lawyer there? <laughs> and he said, sure. <laughs> this is Grayson, Grayson. right? Yeah. yeah. And so I gave my notice and, and I, I left. And uh, which was pretty risky because I mean, I was making a salary, a, you know, livable salary. And, and, uh, and I didn't know what was going out because I was just, I mean, I had three lawyers to advise me and all, but 
uh, I didn't know whether I was going to be on. I didn't know where the courthouse was. You know, I mean, I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about fraction law, and and so it was it was a pretty. For about a year and a half, I probably worked eighty hours a week. Uh, oh, I remember. Didn't make a whole lot of money, uh, and then, you know, and then things just you know, then it you know, you start to catch on to things, and then, you know, and, you, and people. But you need, needed to build a client base too. Yeah, and you build a client base. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the, I, those three guys were really good to me. They supplemented my income a little bit. I, I don't know. I don't remember how much it was, but enough to help me get by. And, and of course, they, they. Grace and Johnson, Pat Bynum, and who was the third and, one? Uh, Shoot, he died. Marshall Cook. Yeah, that's right, Cook. And uh, anyway, that was that was tough times. Uh, big risk, but it worked out all right. I mean, I made a, I made a decent living practicing law, and uh, again, eleven years at the ABC board, and just about eleven years practicing law, got appointed to the judgeship. All right. So before we talk about the judgeship, let's go back to to ABC. For years, I I told people that you were part of the crew that wrote the the law that changed the drinking age for drinking beer. From 18 to 21 so based on what you just described the law had passed and then you were part of the world we probably had input into it i mean i went down and peered any any kind of legislation that the abc commission or board had anything to do with they called on us to go down and give them you know the expert kind of testimony so i appeared in, in front of those committees from time to time down at the legislature uh and, and but i don't remember specifically i probably they probably called on us to testify about the bill because you always you get a piece of legislation that they got to consider whether they're going to pass it fail it amend it or whatever and so they get they get input from people who are supposed to know about it and that was i did some of that but once it was passed you were part of the crew that whatever the regulations whatever the regulations were but then uh, you know then we would have had to write them yeah all right so i'm behind. hoping my friends don't listen to this podcast and i'll, I'll keep telling them that my dad was going to change the law yeah. i don't was, remember my was, role in that but i would have been involved it in was it, in yeah, 85 and i was yeah. 16 almost 17 i, I believe when the uh, law changed yeah. and, and one minute i'm i'm a year year and a half away from being legal and now i'm way <laughs> it felt like forever away from you being blame legal. it on me yeah 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 it's all good it's fine with me that you could <laughs> yeah, <I understand. laughs> and for people listening outside of virginia i think it's a peculiar state because it has abc alcoholic beverage commission uh, yeah. um control it's an even stronger control. control the only place that you can buy liquor in virginia is at um, an a, ABC state, store. a state run store essentially yeah. well by the by the package by the bottle you of course you can get mixed drinks. what when i first went down there i don't even, i don't even think they had a mixed beverage law so i can't for sure but like cocktail at, like getting a cocktail at a bar was not regulated i don't think it I don't think you could do that when I first went down. Maybe you could, but that was a that was a change at some point in Virginia's law. Mm. Yeah, hard liquor is what the ABC stores controlled, and that's where they sold it. Uh, and then, but but now you can get. Of course, for a long time now, you've been able to get restaurants. They have to meet certain qualifications. They got to be a bona fide restaurant, then they can serve mixed drinks. Mm. And we, you know, the standards are in the regulations. What's a bona fide restaurant? Well, the regulation, the legislature doesn't tell you, but the ABC board tells you by writing those regulations. And do you know why? And they have the force and effect of law. Yeah. I, I know like in Texas, you, there are stores that you can just walk in and buy liquor from. Why do you think Virginia has a, a state run, a state control over liquor? There are a number of states that do. Uh, I can't remember how many it is now. Uh, Virginia, uh, and then start moving south, and southwest. <laughs> Probably. So I remember Vermont was one. Some of them, some of them may have changed now. But I remember we went up to Vermont one time to look at their system, see what, see what they were doing. So Vermont was one of them. Uh, the reason I think was after the, uh, you know, after prohibition, uh, you know, liquor's always been a 
problem for everybody, and, and in this country particularly, it became a real problem when we tried to prohibit it altogether, which we found out that didn't work. So, but the thought was that it was such a dangerous substance, and it is. I mean, if you've got any alcoholism in your family, you know what a dangerous mm -hmm. substance it is, and, and ain't too many families that don't have some alcoholism, alcoholism in it somewhere, so that the thought was that they, it needed to be pretty fairly, pretty strongly regulated. And so that's why a number of states developed this, this control system. Uh, and, but it's not, it, it wasn't half the states. I'm trying to remember maybe 17 or 18 at one time. Sounds right. Had it. Um, I don't know if they all still do or not. But, but now, I think the main reason Virginia still has it, and I'm sure there are other reasons, I just haven't, even, I haven't thought about this stuff for a long time, uh, is the profit. Because those ABC stores sell that hard liquor, and they don't give it away, they sell it for a profit, and that profit, guess where it goes? To the general coffers for the state. Mm. So, uh, so they, they would, you know, they would have to raise the taxes on liquor fairly substantially to make up for that profit. I think that's where the rub comes on why, why okay. we don't get rubber. But, but obviously now you can get a mixed drink. Yep. At any place that's authorized to sell it, so it's not like it was. But anyway, that's. Does that answer your question? It I does. Know. Yeah, thank okay. you. So did uh, before we move on to your time as a defense attorney, and, and basically you were the town attorney too, actually. You were the official town attorney. Town attorney, attorney was my, one of my clients, yeah. Before we go there, Zach, did you look up MLRS? I did. All right. Um, I'm better. just giving you a little break because you, you've been <laughs> going for a while. Uh, I, I want you and I to see Daniel's and Zach's reaction when Zach oh, shows the video. Yes. That's that's MLRF. Someday we'll have uh, video, so Daniel and I can show this on video. <laughs> There's one big rocket. Should be a bunch following it. It'll go back, I think. It's like a bunch of tubes. Yeah. Is it doing anything? Did Zach pull the wrong part of the video? We're like, yeah, it's it's about to, I think. It's just one at a time, like yeah, it ten one seconds at a time. Uh, after each other. Yeah, they can be set, so they do it a lot faster than that. That's probably a training thing. Yeah, it's all good. All right, so you were a defense attorney, and I, I remember this distinctly because you went from, I mean, you worked hard at the ABC board, but you said 80 hours a week. I, I think it might have been more than that. Um, but you still took me to, well, you drove me to school. I mean, I went to a school 30-plus minutes away from where we lived, and you drove me until I could drive myself. Yeah. I, had you started the, at the law practice then? It's around that time. Yeah, when did, let's see. You started at St. Christopher's in the eighth grade, so you were 15. Right. So that was 83. 82, 83, yeah. And I was probably, I might have been, I'm not, I'm not even sure, I might have been still at the ABC board then. Yeah, but by, before I graduated, you had started the yeah, practice. I guess. So yeah. what, what did you love about the practice and what did you not love so much once you had settled in once you had some clients and and you were yeah. what i didn't like about it was too hard <laughs> <laughs> i guess everybody thinks their job is hard but you know it's, it's it's uh you know taking care of clients and preparing for trial and you know doing wills and contracts and you know you it's it you know a lot of phone calls and preparing for trial and trials themselves are very scary and, and, and you know and interviewing witnesses and, and and then conducting the actual trial it's all very it's all very stressful at least it was for me i think it is for most 
Did you right. specialize in an area of law, or were you a general? I was. I was. I had. You know, when you're in a small town, and and it ended up just just being me. It ended up with Grayson was the only attorney in Rockville, and I was the only attorney in the National Office, and for for I guess a big part of that time. And uh, so it was a general practice. You can't do everything. Obviously, it's too much. You can't possibly do everything. You have to do. You do stuff that most everybody needs. Most families need. You know, like you know, traffic criminal. You know, they get charged with a criminal thing or something, or their children do, and and uh, wills, estates, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Just uh, family law, all those those kinds of things that people and families need. Yeah. Usually, that's that's what we do. Anything other than that, we refer them to somebody. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. What was your biggest case as a defense attorney? Do you oh, remember? Shoot. I don't know. Uh, and a big right, a big, a big way that because most you know small family lawyers or lawyers in small towns like we we don't get any big criminal cases. Uh, uh, but most every, just about everybody had to, we helped the court by being on a court appointed list. So you were and you and you got paid. You didn't get paid a whole lot, but you got paid. It was, actually it was an excellent way to learn how to be an attorney, because it forced you to go into the courtroom. <laughs> you you were going to go because you would go. You had a day where each t- attorney had a day of trial where you, for where the arraignments were done, and you were assigned cases. If somebody said they wanted a court appointed lawyer, they filled out a financial form. They couldn't you know they met the guidelines. They couldn't hire their own attorney then you'd get appointed to them. So you, I might go over there and I might get five criminal cases that day, you know, or, or more. And, you know, then you, you represented them. You were mm-hmm. their attorney. Uh, and I did, I did a fair amount of that. Uh, I guess I did have, I had a case, it's probably court appointed, represented a guy who was caught with a boatload of marijuana <laughs> in his car. Oh. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. It's like it seemed, my memory's like it was a bale of it or something. It was huge. It seems and like now, a lot of pot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, it was, it was a couple of cases. Like one of them. Yeah, I, yeah. One of them, I got dismissed because the stop. Basically, bottom line was that, that it was a. It was a I think most most cops are honest. This, this one was an honest cop, and he answered the questions honestly. He had no reason to stop that car when he stopped it, except that it was a black guy driving it. Yeah. I think it was a red car with a black guy driving it. Because no I, I asked him questions. Yeah. I said, "Well, you know, was a sticker out of date?" Or <laughs> and I kept and, and and the judge realized that the only reason he stopped it because a black guy driving a red car. Yeah. And you can't do that. That's against the Constitution. Okay, so he dismissed that case. But I had another one. Some... As he should have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he should have. Uh, you can't let the police just stop whoever they want to stop. I mean, because for a policeman to walk up, we have individual freedom. And individual freedom doesn't mean anything if a cop can walk up to you and tell you what to do yep. without any probable cause. Now, without at least a reasonable, articulable suspicion, is what the court case says, of some sort of criminal activity. They just can't do it arbitrarily. Because we wouldn't have any freedom if they could, right? They'd mm. be like little dictators. Yeah, we'd be, so it would be a military state essentially. So, yeah. so it's it's very important that that those rules be upheld, and and uh, and so in this case it was the judges, and he was not one to dismiss. He didn't. He they call them motions. I guess it was just a uh, what was it exclusionary motion to exclude the evidence based on the violation of the Constitution. Anyway, and he granted it, and it was very unusual for him. But, he, but had, it, he had to because that sounded pretty even clear. he had to. And, and you were, <laughs> you had to effectively present that defense. Yeah. And that yeah. motion. Yeah. 
I mean, you have to investigate it and see what happened. And you know, you all, and you always start with that. Was this if it's, if it's a vehicle involved, a vehicle stop? You what are the reasons for the stop? Because that's mm-hmm. the first defense you want to look at. Was it constitutional? Was the officer arbitrary and being a little hit low? Was he following the Constitution and had a probable cause sort of thing? So in, it, in that case, it worked out. I had another one like that, and they, uh, well, I think I had a little bit more evidence stopping him, uh, but uh, not much. But anyway, that went to the Court of Appeals. Convicted him in circuit court, appealed it to the Court of Appeals, and which is a lot of falderall, a lot of procedures and stuff, and all you gotta, you gotta do briefs and all. Falderall, what does that mean? That's an old-fashioned word. A bunch of stuff. Do, is it? <laughs> do, do you do you know how to spell falderall? I don't think I do. Falderall. All right. Well, we'll make it up later. We, all right. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, they, the court of appeals. It didn't go to the full Supreme Court, but the court of, uh, it went to the court of appeals, and I, not the full. I think I think it might have been a panel. You're talking about state level. State level, yeah, yeah state level. And uh, they, and I argued that it was an, uh, a profile again that that they that the profile was invalid. They didn't have any real reason to stop him other than that he fit some sort of profile that the police had, and that it was an invalid profile. And the court, this court upheld the conviction, but they did agree with me that race shouldn't be part of the profile. And so that, that's the only thing. Uh, so Virginia law was that for a while. I think I, I don't remember what happened to that anyway, but that was interesting. The only other thing, the only other, I, I was a town attorney and uh, somebody sued the town and I had to go, and I was federal court because it was town involved. And, uh, and I didn't, I never did do it. Because the county couldn't do anything with it. But when you say well, town. it wasn't. It was the the town of Ashland was the was sued, and so when you sue a governmental entity like that, it goes to the federal the federal system. Okay. Okay. So you got a state system, and you got a federal system. Right. And uh, and we won. And I forget I forget what the issue was, but anyway, uh, I had to defend the town, and we won at the district court level. Federal system is a whole different system. You got to qualify to practice in the federal. And I had done that while I was practicing law. I said, well, I'll try it. So you have to read all this stuff and certify that you've read all the federal rules and, and, and all that sort of thing, and, and, and then you, you get qualified. That sounds like a lot more fall to roll. A lot of fall to roll. Yeah. And, and anyway, I got qualified to practice. Uh, I was certified to practice Virginia courts because I passed a bar. Okay, but to do federal, you got to do all this fall to roll. And <laughs> so I did it, and I quickly realized that I didn't, you know, that I was – out of my depth. Uh, you know, I just I didn't think I could be competent doing state law and federal law you mm-hmm. know, on a regular basis. And so I, I handled like a, one or two very minor things for somebody down in federal court, and I said, I'm out of here. Uh, but, but then it came in handy because I was qualified to practice when the town was sued. I guess I became town attorney after that. I don't remember. And, uh, and we went to district court level. Federal, federal court is system is district circuit and supreme court uh u.s supreme court and so he appealed it to the circuit court so i had to go to the circuit court so that's just how i got i've been i have argued one case in uh in front of the second highest court in the land wow and of that's course cool. we, we won again because the law was on our side <laughs> i don't know why the guy was stupid enough to appeal it nice but he wouldn't listen to me so he appealed it to the other attorney and mm-hmm. we won again so the cases that you got thrown out because of the um unlawful stop mm-hmm. uh how like, what if somebody was stopped illegally with no 
um, what probable cause. Yeah. But instead of it being like marijuana possession, it was like they had like a dead body in, in their car. You know what? What if it was a severe, <laughs> uh, like a high, like a, a much more severe crime? Um, clear you, fe- clear felony. Would you still get the case? Like where does that threshold? Yeah. The case sh- should be dismissed. That sounds crazy, but that's that's how our law works. Because the yeah. stop is unconstitutional. And so unless, anything that unless, comes after that stop... What the case is... Yeah, it's called a fruit of the poisonous tree. So anything that comes as a result of that stop is excluded from evidence. Now, that, what would probably happen in a case that serious, they'd really start digging into it and try to come up with you know, some another more way. evidence and, yeah, and another right. way to do it. Okay, Whereas with some marijuana, they just, okay, they let it go. Yeah. But, uh, I, I, but yeah, but no, it's, it's called the fruit of the poisonous tree, and, it, and anything that comes is supposed, supposed to be That's fascinating. It excludes the evidence, is what it does. The evidence found as a result of that stop cannot be used in the prosecution. So if it's a dead body, then then that body can't be used. But they can. Well, then they're obviously going to start looking, and they'll find other evidence yeah. that he did it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when you were, uh, I guess, I might might have been eighty seven, eighty eight. I was probably bigger than you at that point, <laughs> and but you you were still my dad. I was I still had a healthy amount of fear of you, but not when it came to uh, who see who would give up when we shook hands. <laughs> we we would do we didn't have a name for it, but basically we were trying to get the other one to quit. I don't know how we started that. This happened just at one time. Uh, I probably started. I'm pretty sure I started because I, I was I was letting you know that I was. Uh, I, yeah. I didn't have to listen to you anymore because mm-hmm. I could squeeze your hand harder mm-hmm. than you squeeze mine, or mm-hmm. I could make you give up. Anyway, mm-hmm. we did it, and we 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 probably went into three or four rooms around the house. <laughs> we might have fallen down a couple I remember times. We went up and down the stairs. Yeah, it was crazy, <laughs> and we were not. You, you neither one of us would let go. So, so <laughs> one of the one of the uh, genes I got from you was stubborn. There's no way in heck I was letting go, uh, and I I think we agreed that. We, we, we should stop simultaneously, and we did this, in my head, very dramatic countdown, three, two, one, and then we were supposed <laughs> to let go of each other's hands. And uh, I, I didn't uh, learn this, I don't know, a couple of months have gone by, maybe two or three months have gone by, and uh, I, I think I came into your office, in your that little house there on Thompson, and you were talking into a, a tape recorder. These, these were things before cell phones. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And... Uh, you you finished doing what you were doing. I said, "Why are you talking to a tape recorder?" And I th- I think in that moment you said, "Cause I can't write with a pen or a pencil." <laughs> and I said, "Why can't you write with it?" I was I was worried. I'm like, "Is Dad sick or something? What's going on?" And you're like, "Pretty sure I have nerve damage from that stupid handshake thing we were doing." And I'm pretty sure I did. And and I there was a part of me that felt bad because you're my dad. I didn't want to hurt you permanently like that or cause it was hurting your profession. And you were still paying for some of my stuff. <laughs> Uh, but I also felt really proud of myself that I, <laughs> I was able to accomplish yeah. that. He, he was not hurt at all, but I still have a weaker right hand. Wow. <laughs> well, I, I think you learned a lesson that day. I did. <laughs> uh, when he got to be 12 years old, he decided, because he was bigger than his mother, that uh, he didn't have to listen to her anymore. Oh, and and so, all, all Mom said was, wait till your dad gets home. And so, I'm Brenda, like, no, no, don't tell Dad. Brenda, Brenda talked to him. And it, when he was 12, he didn't have an advantage of squeezing my hand. Yeah. And, and so she talked to me about it. And so I went and talked to him about it. And he saw the wisdom of his yeah, he my said, ways. He, <laughs> said, he says talk. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I wouldn't define that as talking. 
<laughs> I never smacked you but one time. <laughs> I remember that smacking. And I deserved it. Just I probably once. deserved a few more. It's the only time I ever smacked him. Of course, he was punished for stuff. No, he wasn't mom physically. Was, mom spanked me two or three times. And the last time she spanked me, I laughed at her. <laughs> and then, I, then the next time I was paved, I got the one spank room. I'm like, oh, I don't want that again. It doesn't sound fun. Well, yeah. I, what I did, I would have never spanked him except I made the mistake of threatening him with the spanking. I said, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you. And so what did I expect? He did it again. And I think it was something involving Buffy. I always. And, uh, <laughs> I told you to leave her alone mm-hmm. or something that you didn't. So I had to spank him. I remember I took you up. You were up we were upstairs on a goat coach in the hallway. I don't remember that. And I laid you over my and I wheeled you. But I... I <laughs> I don't remember what I did, really but I, did. I, I remember being spanked. If you say whale, let's be clear for the audience, because oh, bare, hand, bare, bare hand, and you might be thrown in jail these days for doing that kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had friends that were getting it a lot worse than just a bare hand. I know that for a fact. Yeah, well, yeah. I, 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 really, I really did hate to do it. I felt as bad as you did, I'm sure, doing it. I don't, I don't remember how many times I whacked you, but enough to get the point across. But it it was painful for me to do that, too. As Jackie Gleason uh, said in Smoking <laughs> the Bandit, it was an attention getter. <laughs> but I promised it, so, you know, I had to do yeah, it. Yeah, you got to follow through, it. sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, good times. All right, so you're a lawyer, and then uh, you ended up becoming a judge. Who, did they come to you? You weren't looking for a judge yet, right? No, I was not. Some people, uh, the, ju- the former judge was not reappointed. Very unusual circumstance she was not reappointed and so needed a judge and uh, a couple members of the bar came to me at different times and said you know we want you to throw your hat in the ring and the main reason was I think that a couple other people had thrown a hat in the rings that nobody thought was going to be a good judge but they might have had some some pull so I said no I wasn't interested first couple of times I guess and then I and then I agreed I said okay well I'll do it and uh, and then you know, went through all that process. It took a couple of years, yeah, right? A couple of years because of politics. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy, right? Hey, we want you to be a judge. And this was the, I think the lieutenant governor, uh, maybe not directly approached you, but it was coming from the lieutenant governor's office that they wanted to appoint you is how I remember it. Uh, bowling, right? Well, bowling, he wasn't a lieutenant governor at that time. He was a senator. He oh, he, he ended senator. up being a lieutenant governor. He was a senator. Yeah. yeah. Okay. How, right. how do they um, discover, because you were a small town attorney, how do they find you? Well, I after I decided that I would do it, you know, you have to apply. So mm. I filled out an application form, and it goes on from there. Uh, you know, they do a background check and all that. Of course, I had to talk bowling, and Frank Hargrove was a delegate, delegate, and so I had to talk with them. And, and you know, as I, as I said earlier, which was before this, I guess, uh, they formed a panel, which they don't typically do. Normally, they just appoint you. You know, mm-hmm. they you. Normally, the Senate and the House will go along with whatever, whoever, whoever's nominating you, your delegate and your Senate. It's, it's both, both houses have to approve. So if your delegate puts you forward, the rest of the House will go along with that, typically. But in this case, since I was repu- being appointed by a Republican and the House was Democratic, they wouldn't go along with it. So until, yeah, it, well, that's how until it was changed. State, state government works, that's how the federal government that's works. That's politics. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, do you have any memorable stories from your time in the uh, in the seat there on the bench? Uh, and I, let's leave names out since uh, you've lived in this county basically your entire life. Oh, it was. You ended up being the Certainly juvenile. I would have to leave 
names up. Yeah, juvenile and domestic relations uh, judge, which meant you were you had people come in front of you that you had known for a couple of years or well, if I knew them, I, and, and, and I, and if I knew them and I thought it was that, that I wouldn't be able to render an impartial judgment, I have to do what's called recuse myself. Right. So I, mm. and I did have to do that a few times, not as much as I thought actually, cause you know, the most of the population of Hanover, or at least well, I retired 10 years ago, Owen McCanksville in the East end. Right. That's, uh, that was kind of like the bedroom community for Richmond. And uh, so I didn't have to recuse myself that much. I did some, uh, you knew a lot of people in Western Hanover, but not so much in Eastern Hanover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so that wasn't a... And, and you had Caroline in Spotsylvania uh, that you had to see cases for, too, right? Well, when I first started out, I was the only judge in Hanover, only judge in Caroline. And then I went every fifth Friday, I think it was, up to Spotsylvania. To yeah, and you say only. You were the only juvenile and domestic Only J&DR judge. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And J&DR, juvenile and domestic relations are... It's too long for people to say. They usually just say JNDR. Right. It's it's really a family court. It does all the family stuff, uh, custody, visitation, child support, spousal support, all its civil stuff. And then it does uh, criminal for juveniles, everybody under 18, and it does criminal for adults if the victim is a member of the household. In other words, if, you, if a child stole from... His grandmother, so you go buy drugs, as an example. Then, uh, well, I'm sorry, if, a, if an adult, better example would be if an adult committed sex abuse on a child, mm-hmm. then his charges would come to the JNDR court. So I did a lot of criminal, uh, adult criminal. I think I probably did, I don't know, more adult crime than, than juvenile crime. Really? And all the domestic violence, domestic violence was a big chunk of the docket because of protective orders and then the trial on the usually assault and battery charges. So we had to have a protective, I think in all the time I did it, I think I had one man come in asking for a protective order from his wife. He was afraid of her. He was, she was going to beat him up with a frying pan or something. I can't remember what it was. But, <laughs> but not in, you know, other than that, all of it was always women would come in and the statute said you had to hear them that day. The day they came in and filled out the petition for a protective order, they yeah, had to... Because they feared yeah, for... they needed yeah. it. They had to come in. You had to give them a hearing that day. And that was just a one-sided hearing, which is total anathema to our system of democracy. And uh, but, but under the circumstances, the legislature authorized it. And then what happened, you could you could kick the guy out of the house. If, he was, if they were living together, you could kick him out of the house for 15 days. But then you had to grant a hearing that he could come to within that 15-day period. So... Uh, we did. We. I was surprised. We did. I did one of those every day. It was a rare day that I didn't have at least one. I think the worst was seven of them in one day. The initial protective order hearings. And, and, and Hanover County is not a densely populated right. place. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. I was surprised. And then, uh, and then within 15 days, you got to have the, 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 another hearing to decide if you're going to extend that protective order. Mm. And I could do it for up to two years at that point. But then I had to hear from both sides. And and then there was usually the criminal charges against the guy for assault and battery. So it was like a three hearing thing. Uh, and uh, so that took up a So most of the time it was um, it was a justified, the people coming in for a protective order were, were justified in wanting one, as, as opposed to like weaponizing it because they were trying to, for example. Uh, yeah, at the first out. hearing, there's very little evidence. And the statute just said if there was, uh, I guess it said, 
I don't know if it used, I can't even remember whether it was probable cause or reasonable cause to believe that, that the facts in the affidavit, what the, what the woman says, and I, I would bring them in and listen to them. If what she said uh, constituted a probable cause, mm -hmm. I would grant a protective order for the 15-day order. And then, uh, and then if, a guy didn't, if a guy got notice and didn't show up for that second hearing within a 15 days, uh, then I'd usually grant a second one. And, and usually the evidence was good enough even on a second one to extend it for two days, or for two years. Most so of the time. were you surprised by how much um, domestic abuse and battery you saw? Uh, yes, I, w I would say a lot of it was not horrible, uh, but it's but it's it's horrible to put your hands on your wife. It's uh, it's clearly bad. Uh, right. uh, but but some of it was just like you know they get into a big argument, you know, and and they kind of get up in each other's face and the next thing you know the guy's just kind of pushed her away from him you know and, that, and that's it he doesn't go after her and smack her or anything like that so you know i didn't i, I didn't i probably i don't know I, I, for most if, if if those were the facts i probably took it under advisement for six months made the guy go do some anger management or something and uh, you know just a range of things but didn't put him in jail and gave him an opportunity to get rid of it but, you know, if he hit her, if it was physical, you know, really, bam, anything like that, he usually went to jail. And treatment, anger management treatment, which I, I have no idea whether that worked or not. You know, who knows? Do uh, you have evidence that it ever did? Uh, you know, I, we didn't have any real follow-up. If, if it did work, then, yeah, they wouldn't be back in your court, right? Yeah, well, yeah, and I, that's true. So, it, I don't know It whether, probably works for some well, and not whether for they, Whether it was a, they just got wise or they... Or the training helped them. I don't know the classes. I don't know which was which. But anyway, it was all we had, so we made them do it. And, wow. Uh, and I think it probably helped some people. I did go sit in in, in one of the sessions of, of that anger management you know, therapy that we ordered them into. And, uh, of course, me being there changed the whole <laughs> complexion of the thing, I know. Yeah. But, but it looked like, you know, if, if they wanted to change, that would have helped them change, I think. I could say that. And it's good for you to go and see what you're sending them to. Yeah, well, I try to do that with everything. If I ordered somebody to do something, I wanted to know what it was. So then I would send them to. And mm -hmm. we ordered them to do lots of stuff, parroting classes and all kinds of things. Otherwise, you'd, you'd be insincere sending them to something that you'd yeah. never yeah. witnessed yourself. Yeah. yeah. So you were a judge for 12 years. Uh, yeah. I think you enjoyed parts of it, and other parts were pretty tiring for you. Uh, but you retired about nine, ten years ago, right? Be ten years, uh, first day. So how do you how do you spend your retirement? Because I, you and I have talked about this a couple of times. You you don't play golf. You don't play tennis. Oh, uh, uh, let me back up. With oh the yeah. court. I love it. You are. I've tried to talk to you about <laughs> this stuff for thirty years, and you never wanted to come back to anything. Now we're slowing yeah. down. Yeah. yeah. Right. All right. Go ahead. I don't remember you want to talk about it so much, but anyway, um, <laughs> that's that's fair. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Uh, some of it was fun, like uh, people, courts have, judges have what they call contempt of court powers for contempt that takes place right in your presence. And there's a, there's a holding cell, a prison cell, a jail cell right off the courthouse. You just go through the door and there's a cell. Well, in fact, I think it was about three cells back there. And, and, and I, I only, in the 12 years, I think I used that about maybe four or five times. But one of them, <laughs> this woman was raising Cain. She was just, she just 
you know, she just jumped up and started yelling, you know, that I couldn't do something. Somebody, her son was testifying or something, and I couldn't make it. I said, ma'am, ma'am, you just got to sit down. I'd always give them three chances. I'd always, if they were disruptive, I'd always say, okay, the man understand, but, you know, you can't do that. We're conducting a trial here. You just, you need to sit down and be quiet. And so second time, <laughs> she's jumping up, she's, and, and same thing. And then the third time she said, you can put me in jail if you want to, but, you know, yada, yada. I said, ma'am, you are in jail. Put her in a holding cell. <laughs> the bailiff, you know, he's, a, he's got a badge and a gun, and he would do whatever I ask him to do. Two of them, they, they get her, they put her in a holding cell. So, I mean, I could have brought her back out, charged her officially with contempt, convicted her, and sent her to jail for 10 days. That's what you can do with that sort of stuff. I never did that. But I let her sit back there while we heard a couple more cases. And I don't know, 45 minutes maybe. I said, go, go get her. Because <laughs> you felt bad, right? Yeah, I didn't want to keep her back that too long. <laughs> she came out, she was mild and meek. It was, you know, it was lion and lamb. She went in like a lion, she came out like a lamb. Wow. And she, <laughs> she was in there probably like a month or two later. I, was a, I don't know, as a witness or something. I can't remember why she came back in. She was so polite. Mm. Yeah. So that, It's amazing what a gel cell did for you. <laughs> I just thought I'd share that. That was interesting. That's a good one. Did you uh, require anybody to say uh, yes, sir, or yes? If juvenile said yeah to you, what? I did. I did. I wouldn't take yeah. I would. They could say yes or no, or yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am. But not but I, nah. Not yeah. a yeah. I just yeah. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I think most most people my age or adults think that's disrespectful. Yeah, I agree. Zach says you out of me all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. Maybe when I was five, he'd beat me if I didn't That's say not yes, true. Sir. That's a joke. It's a joke. Well, I was, I was trying to get Zach to speak more, but maybe I don't want him to speak anymore. Uh, I mean, so. I didn't do anything to him. I would just correct him and say, right, please don't say yes. Call me sir yeah. or judge or, you know, your honor, anything, but don't yeah me. Right. Yeah, that's how I remember growing up. Yeah. <laughs> and that was because I was a judge. I mean, they had to be respectful to the robe, you know. Right. Above all. To the, to the bench. Did yeah, you make uh, yeah. Did you make Paul um, call you your honor around the house? <laughs> <laughs> no, he did not. I did have to say yes, sir, and no, sir, though. I can tell you what Brenda said when I got that job. <laughs> she said, she said, you can leave all that judge stuff over at the courthouse when you come home. Because <laughs> she, for example, she I'm not standing up when you come in a room, you know, because when, when you come in for the day, the bailiff says, all rise. You know, when you walk into the courtroom, yes, everybody yeah. stand up. She said, you know, I'm doing that. Leave all that judge stuff at the, at the courthouse. Yeah, my, like, mom's in charge at home. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> There's no question. And when I retired, she said, don't expect lunch. <laughs> so I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> that's, that's funny. We're going to have to get her on this. Yeah, mom, mom, mom will uh, come on, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, she might have seen that differently, but that's what I remember. That sounds right. <clears throat> As an objective member of the family, that sounds right to me. So you retired roughly 10 years ago. Not a, not a golf guy, not a uh, tennis guy. How do you spend your time in retirement these days? Well, first, I don't know, five years or so. I was pretty busy. I volunteered, did a lot of volunteer stuff. I volunteered Ashland. I still volunteered at Ashland Christian Emergency uh, Services Place, which is an organization that helps the poor. I work there every Wednesday morning. Uh, and uh, I became a volunteer. I had to take a bunch of training, but I volunteered at the local uh, pregnancy resource center down here. Helps women who've gotten pregnant and may or may not want to have it. Uh, 
and in Richmond, I did that every Monday for about five years. Uh, Essentially counseling. Uh, with the guys, with the, when they came, with the women. The, yeah. If the father came, counseled with him. I didn't have anything to do with the women. They didn't want us to do that. Uh, and, I, you know, I was, at those first five or six years, I was really active at our church. I was teaching Sunday school, and I was a deacon, and I was, you know, a moderator of all the business meetings and uh, committees on various committees and things, and, you know, volunteered at the food pantry. I was, I was pretty busy. And you've, you've but, had our kids volunteer a ton with you. Say again? You've had my kids volunteer with you quite a bit. Yeah, and, well, not, not as much as I should have or would have liked to, but uh, anyway, it's time, hard to match up our schedules. But, uh, yeah, and, but because I'm, I don't want to give the impression my health is awful or anything, but because of this heart thing, I am getting more and more fatigued all the time. So I have You've slowed down for a, sure. And and uh and shortness of breath kicks in sometimes or just walking or going upstairs or so or lifting stuff. Uh so I've had to I've slowed down. Also I changed churches. Uh and so I I got out of all the stuff that I was in at the other church and I, I've only been we've only been at the other church about a year, so we haven't gotten involved in a whole lot. Yeah, we've involved this week. Helping out with something, but not a whole lot. So, uh, you know, and then everybody, like everybody else, you know, you got I got grandkids, I got yard work, I got all that stuff yeah. to do. So I stayed really busy, like I said, for about the first five or six years, and and now I'm, I'm slowing down. I don't have as much going on. I'm and I'm doing a lot more reading. So oh. I read a lot. Yeah, he is. Uh, I've always he's, he's read more books than I can. Possibly do in I've always enjoyed times. reading. I just never had time to do much reading, and so mm. now I'm reading. So uh, you've got to go to the basketball game here in a little bit, but tell us about your uh, family. It can be <laughs> mom and your two kids. It can be mom, and, and you don't have to. I'm clearly part of this podcast. Zach is as well, but we, Zach hasn't talked a ton. Tell us about your your. Uh, your I have a sister. You have a, another uh, kid, and you have a few grandkids. Tell us about them. <laughs> well, or, or tell us more about mom if you want to. You're right. <laughs> well, your mom, as I've said to you many times, is an amazing woman. She's got a PhD and she can do anything. She, uh, if you have any handy genes, there, it probably came from your mother. She can do most. She can do any kind of craft in the world. She can paint portraits if she wanted. She painted a portrait of a dog, uh, and it looks just like her. Uh, she can, you know, she's done every kind of thing in the world. Stained glass windows, uh, pottery, uh, you know, you just name it. She she fools with it. She does it. She masters it to a certain point that satisfies her, and then she moves on to another one. Uh, she can fantastic flower ranger. She's she still of, does flower. She does right? a lot of flower flower stuff. She was a state champion for the for the Virginia State Garden Club, and their annual show one year. Uh, oh, I think the only year she ever entered it. Uh, anyway, she's she's a very talented smart woman and I'm blessed to have her as a wife and you're blessed to have her as a mother absolutely and you're blessed to have her as a grandmother yes sir <laughs> and obviously I knew that very early on as I stated earlier since I uh, met her in kindergarten and <laughs> dated her all the way through high school and college and we got married right out of college about a month after we graduated we got married uh, and then along came two wonderful children yep uh, Paul came first. We wanted we wanted a boy. We got Paul. We wanted a girl. We got Buffy. And so then we decided. Well, you didn't name her Buffy. Let's be let's well, let's be clear on the name. <laughs> we named her Elizabeth. And you know the story, Zach. Anyway, uh-huh. 
when he was little, he couldn't Dan, Daniel and our 17 listeners don't know. He couldn't pronounce Elizabeth. The best he could, the closest he could get was Wubba Buff when she was so that sounds right she became buff or buffy because of the she, buff. she's actually 16 years younger than me and I, could, no, I, I, I was two years 11 months when she came out. yeah just about three years in between them and um uh, and as i think i said at probably both their weddings toast i said they've never done anything except make me proud of them both of them so it's mostly true. <laughs> mostly true. You know, it is true, I think. Uh, yeah, and before you go to the grandkids things. real quickly, mm-hmm. he could not wait for me to get married because he knew that kids would be following soon, or at least he assumed they were. He's been asking for grandkids. <laughs> Zach's 18 now, so I'd say about, I don't know, 30 years he's been looking for grandkids. Well, when you got married, I started asking that. No, I understand. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah, my parents yeah. are starting to ask as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, hey, that's grandkids are a lot better than kids. I'll tell you. <laughs> well, you, you can leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, 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 I teased Buffy probably just well equally as much or more, and I, she she got married for early. He waited to get married. She got married out of college, but uh, they decided they weren't going to have kids. They wanted to, you know do their own thing for a while. So she didn't have a kid till she was older. I think they waited like six years, five or six years. I can't remember. So anyway, I, I teased her pretty badly there for those five or six years about when was she going <laughs> to. And finally, I think the last thing I said, Buffy, with, a matter, with this matter of grandchildren, do, do you know how that works? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a reasonable question. <laughs> anyway, they finally came through. Both at the same time, four months difference between Zach and his first cousin. Came in waves. Got two boys, a boy and a girl in a wave, one month apart. And then yeah. we got then we got Mel. Wow. Yeah, so name name your five grandkids from oldest uh, to youngest real quick. <laughs> Old Stuart, Zach, Cameron, Lindsay, and Mel. Yep. You didn't think I could do that, did you? No, I did. I did. <laughs> well, hold on. Well, so, he so, can't spell my name right, so... so. <laughs> well, no, no. <laughs> That's just shorthand. That is not true, Zach. That is shorthand. <laughs> shorthand. I write shorthand on his presents for Christmas when I wrap them. Uh-huh. I wrap all the grandkids' presents because they don't have to be done with great care because they're just going to rub them up anyway. So yeah. Brenda lets me. Brenda, well, now she lets me. At first she didn't want to, but now she does. Anyway, I write his name on I just put Z-A-K. Mm. And he thinks I don't know how to spell his name. Because you you're not going to confuse Z-A-K with Lindsay or Melissa. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But it was, I, there was something we caught this past Christmas where you weren't quite uh, on your Z-A-K. Yeah, it's there was a little more evidence. I can't remember what it was either, but I really the, the, didn't know how to spell it. The, there was but a I, hint of a C before yeah, the K. Yeah, you were like C-A-C-K. Or something. Yeah. something indicated it could have, I could have thought it was C-K. C-C-A. Yeah, it's all good. I mean, it was arguable. You could have, you could have made an argument. There was evidence. Side. Yeah, right on. <laughs> Well, cool, Dad. Hey, thank you so much for your willingness to do this. I know when I first brought this up, you're like, what are you talking about, podcast? (laughs) Uh, Of course, I just have learned what a podcast is in the last few Mm -hmm. months, too. Uh, You are like almost everybody we've talked to. Once we get you warmed up to talk about yourself, you uh, you end up enjoying it a bit. Yes, and, I have and, enjoyed it. Thank you, Daniel, for fucking all the stuff. Absolutely, and, and you are enjoyed meeting you today too. You are one of the most humble, selfless people I've ever known, which is why about sixty percent of what I heard today was was new to me. And I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. I'm glad Zach was able to participate in this, and uh, I hope someday uh, my grandkids and great grandkids get to listen to this. Yeah, well, and, and I'm very glad that people out there will be able to hear 
all of the service that you've uh, provided to your community and to your country. So well, thank you for sharing. Well, thank you very much. Awesome. I have enjoyed it. Great. That's awesome. I'm so glad you did it. That's it? it? Yeah, we're it. good. Yep. <laughs> You're going to cut it off now? No, no he's, he's not going to cut it off. <laughs> okay. The music will start. Uh, not <laughs>